I'm gonna dedicate this to someone kind of special who just might be here tonight. Here's a song called I'm Easy. It's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me When it's a love you won't be needing, you're not free Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing If you won't take the things you make me want to give I never care too much for games and this one's driving me insane you're not half as free to wander as you claim, but I'm easy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. And I am Jim Lazkowski. Did you hear that? You hear that? We just put, we put like a crowd crowd sound effect people losing their minds we took it from the, the first track of some paul mccartney live album <laughs> you know those live albums they would start with like 15 seconds of cheering before the first note of baby i'm amazed or what i guess he mm-hmm. would probably start with like band on the run or something we are like the lennon mccartney of podcasting yeah yeah we are we are we're like we're like um we're like jack lemon and uh andrew mccarthy it's not a downgrade. can i be jack lemon though i always wanted to be jack lemon i've already been told i look like andrew mccarthy by unreliable narrators, so mm-hmm. I'll take it. So, um, back, yeah, Welcome I'm back to the city. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I don't know what this is a podcast, and yeah. I gotta talk. <laughs> I've, I, I gotta remember how to talk. Yeah, you have to remember how to speak into microphones, you have to remember how to be engaging, you have to remember that mm, there's literally engaging. a thousand people listening to this. Oh my god, yeah, that's wild. Wild one. Um, it's crazy to be in the same room recording and not via Skype. So that way we can actually treat this like a Robert Altman episode and, and talk, talk over, over each other, other a lot, because, you know, because that's talk, what you do, do and when you're talking. It's not as if like yeah. it's cutting out mm-hmm, the Skype mm-hmm. technology is bullshit. Exactly. So it's going to be quite the honor and what an appropriate episode for me to return on because um, honestly, I, I was not uh, as familiar with Robert Altman until you're like, Robert Altman? Whoo! Oh boy! And uh, I started watching. Yeah, Robert you have to Altman. understand, Robert Altman was the name of the claim that I got from an old dying cowboy. <laughs> the gold has gone back to where we found it. <laughs> That's true. But Robert Altman, in addition to being where I laid my hat, uh, to just just south of the Yukon, it was a. He's a great director. I think he is. Yeah. Um, the more I see the more I understand why he is your favorite director. He's absolutely. This is going to be a rare episode where I get to gush because usually I tend to be more critical and no. I, I don't turn my, you know, no, I, I am. I'm, I'm more critical and I don't just, uh, I don't blindly just love everything like I, me. I'm not some dummy who just embraces everything just because it's 24 frames a second. No, but like you know the skeleton I mean? twins, like <laughs> someone could tell me like a hundred things about Brewster McCloud that are just dumb and make no sense and I'd be like yeah I mean that you, I read I read it looks that, that all checks out but I don't care I love Brewster McCloud that's like a lesser Altman I love the shit out of that just mm-hmm. the way Altman shoots movies is it's, it's just pure pleasure for me 
So in his movies that are actually like really brilliant, the scripts are brilliant, the performances are incredible, and the structure and everything like all comes together. Like movies like Nashville or McCabe and Mrs. Miller, like that's just one of the greatest. You know, those are just the greatest films ever. But you know, I can watch a movie like you know Brewster McCloud. I can I can watch a movie like Gosford Park. I can you know watch a movie. Um, like uh, Beyond Therapy even, and just really enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah, well, you've yet to see Dr. T and the Women. Yeah, that's true. You know. I, he's he's too had prolific. some clunkers, and I, I haven't seen prolific. Ready to Wear. Which he's is, too prolific to, to have no bad movies. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Uh, there's no there's no director who has – the only director who has, quote-unquote, no bad movies is Stanley Kubrick, and that's because he was too cowardly to make enough. You know, I'll say it right now. Stanley Kubrick was a goddamn coward. Robert Altman put himself out there. Robert Altman had one goddamn hit. He had MASH, and then he strung an insane career out of MASH. Did he follow MASH up with three women? No. Oh, okay. MASH was 1970. Immediately, they said, all right, you have the keys to the kingdom. This is one of the biggest comedies of all time. We, It's totally all you. You're a genius. What do you want to do? He said, I want to do a movie about a boy who tries to fly in the That's astronaut. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. Goddamn Brewster McCloud. <laughs> like, if you watch California Split and you know something about Robert Altman's career, it makes a lot more sense because uh, he gambled with a lot of these movies. But because they probably weren't that expensive and because actors were probably willing to work work for him for not much money because he's such a you know an actor's director, he was able to keep you know getting these films made. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Robert Altman's fantastic. I will concur with that, and we will definitely elaborate more. We have a little business <gasps> to talk about. What is it? Well, we've uh, done our fair share of bonus episodes too. That's true. Yeah, you can go back in our feed and look at the bonus episodes. Um, I had a birthday party that you yeah. helped me with. It was a clip party, and um, you you basically I had me, you, my partner Regina. Um, Gabe Powers, uh, you know, previous, Bill Ackerman. Yeah, previous guest Bill Ackerman. Um, other people send in clips, um, and then we sort of uh, like you know three to three and a half minute uh, sections of movies, and then you put them all together in these really great packages, uh, and we sort of just had a party where we you know we drank and we ate and we watched all these clips, all these crazy clips from all these different kinds of movies, and at the end we had. Awards like best fight scene, uh, funniest scene, best what the fuck scene, mm-hmm. and uh, I wanted to thank you publicly, so <gasps> it's on the record uh, for putting that together, and that's online actually. Uh huh. If you guys at home want to watch this uh, and see how we spent my birthday party, uh, that's online. What What is the website? I this? think it's clipparty.tumblr.com, isn't it? It's just clip party. You got I that. Hope so you got right in at clip party. This might be a thing we do more often. Not, I think not, so. Not I think like, it's fun. Not like every month, but um, uh, because it's you. You put in a lot of hours of work, you know, rendering you know, all these clips and putting them all together. And it's hard not to get you know the quality consistent. That's sure. something that's video difficult to video do. editing is just one of those things that just destroys computers. Yeah. And it's just it's hard to render videos. You know, and edit videos, and these are videos from all different kinds of sources. Some you captured, some I captured, some were ripped from YouTube. So if only we can get everything as a Blu-ray yeah. quality, then it would be perfect. Someday we're going to look back on these as like you know the uh, pre the prehistoric times. But anyway, I just want to say I thought you did such a great job. I want our listeners to be able to watch this. It's a really fun thing. Yeah, we discovered I enjoyed this. my it. favorite critic who I've talked about a lot on the show, Mike D'Angelo. His friend has had a birthday clip party every year for like fourteen years or whatever, and. 
Mike had a letterbox list up of all the clips that he submitted. Mm. And he on it, he linked to the website where his friend had has a website where they have the full lineup of every year's uh, clip parties. And then they have, you know, links to the Vimeo where they've uploaded their clips. And, you know, me and Regina, uh, one night we just found those and we started watching them. And it's just, it's so much fun to just see a movie as a three minute section. Um, and just, you know, see a scene as a three minute section of a movie, like just completely divorced from everything else. And um, yeah, it's like turning it into a Pollock painting. Yeah, exactly. Just it's throwing it everywhere. Beautiful montage. Because I didn't like try to necessarily, with with some exceptions, of course, to link certain clips together. And like you know, I threw in your, I smell smoke, and yeah, then threw it into like you know somebody flicking a cigarette or whatever. It was fun. It was fun to do. Yeah, yeah. You, but, had, uh, you had like little bumpers in between everything. You had yeah. you had some bonus bonus moments. <laughs> Like including the trailer for Making Contact, yeah, that movie with the, mm-hmm. the fucking ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, that movie freaked me out when I was a kid. I bet, I yeah. bet. And it's one of those horrible mishmash '80s movies yeah. where everything from you know everything from the Goonies to ET is ripped off in that movie. Mm-hmm. I think, and actually, there's like Star Wars stuff yeah. in there, like yeah. Darth Vader, and even Poltergeist too. Oh, yeah, like yeah. a closet glowing and don't right. go in there. So uh, clipparty.tumblr.com if you want to check that stuff out. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, the, I'm, only one clip couldn't get up onto Vimeo. Yeah, I don't know why that's never happened before through Vimeo, but yeah, wa- maybe but David, wa- the wild, David burns a lot like Prince. Yeah, maybe the Wild Wildlife uh, video, uh, the Wild Wildlife uh, number, True Stories from True Stories, and then the winner of best clip this year was uh, Regina's submission, which was Night of the Hunter Leaning, where mm-hmm. um, the old woman's on the porch with a shotgun and they're sort of singing that gospel song to each other, and then the uh, there's the owl and the bunny. Good, good scene. You should see Night of the Hunter. I don't know if you've ever heard of this film, but uh, it's really good. Uh, no, I prefer the re- I prefer the remake with De Niro. Yeah, you prefer the remake with De Niro. I prefer the uh, semi remake uh, by David Gordon Green. Under oh film. yeah. Um, so, but I mean, yeah, I think I definitely want to do that for my birthday. Yeah, and your birth and it it works out good because my birthday is in December and yours is in July. May. May. Okay, so but summer. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll have like at least twice a year, we'll have a uh, clip parties, and uh, you know it'll be fun. Yeah, we can even invite the listeners to throw a clip if we want, but it might be really long. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing. I really had to. It was a lot of work coordinating everyone so that there weren't too many clips and that people's clips didn't go too long. And yeah, like it ended up being a nice total length, like ninety minutes. And I wouldn't mind it being like a, a tad longer next time we do it. But like, oh sure. But uh, you definitely don't want it to go into a three-hour thing, especially if it's going to be an actual thing where you invite your friends over to sit and watch it. And your friends aren't necessarily obsessed with movies like you are. And mm-hmm. their their eyes maybe sort of start to wander when it's some, like, serious emotional scene. <laughs> <laughs> so, Which I deliberately did with Mysterious Skin. Why did you do that? Why did you? I put- just wanted to see what people – like, after all these funny clips, I wanted to put something that, like – blew me away in the theater like something that genuinely surprised me because i hate greg araki yeah but i was getting like you know i was hearing all this praise for this movie and i'm like okay i like joseph gordon the silent night yeah scene that from destroys me Mm -hmm. and it's an amazing movie not it might be a great scene not a good clip party scene i'm gonna go and say that (laughs) right now but uh, also, I was a, um, a guest on another podcast oh i need to hear this yeah called the pop culture pop culture lens 
Sounds familiar. Pop culture. Jim, Jim, why don't you sing uh, eight bars of one of your favorite songs while I'm looking this up? Hmm. Um, don't think. Just whatever whatever comes to your head first is automatically your favorite. Go ahead. No, go. I don't like this kind of pressure. Go. I'm not good go on the spot. And it'll be on the record. That'll be absolutely your favorite, so don't screw up. Hmm. Maybe I could sing... Uh, what a beautiful face that I found in this place when we're circling all around the sun. Maybe I could sing... <laughs> It was good. That's right. exactly how Neutral Milk Hotel starts that song. It was actually the Pop Culture Lens uh, podcast. Uh, previous guests, uh, Christopher Olson um, and uh, his partner, Carrie Lynn Reinhard, uh, host that. It's a more of a scholarly podcast than oh. like maybe 99% of other film podcasts, which is just uh, douchebags, uh, you know, a bunch of chuckleheads sort of just saying whatever shit comes tumbling out of their mouth like us. But theirs is actually structured, and like they have a specific approach to films, and a, they're looking at things through certain lenses, and they a pop culture lens. Yeah, yeah it's uh, structured like an academic paper, even. Mm. So, <gasps> is yeah, it, so d- did you do the bibliography? Yeah, <laughs> basically, basically, I, it's it's the podcast I'm least qualified to be on because I barely graduated high school. But um, but it was a lot of fun because we talked about Carnival of Souls. No way. Yeah, yeah, me Carnival <gasps> of Souls. It's like it's almost as if you didn't know. Yeah. That's I love a, that. That's shocking. It's my oh, I love that movie. So we talked about Carnival. I think that's pretty Souls. good. And uh, if you want to check that out, it's popculturelenspodcast.tumblr.com. Is he the one writing the book for Nicholas Winding Refn or about? Yeah. Him? Oh yeah. I don't. I don't know if uh, if that's still uh, happening because he was he was pitching it to a lot of people and I don't know um, what the status of that is. But uh, yeah, he was on our Nicholas Winding Refn episode. Wow. He'll be on a future episode. Yeah, he better be. Um, cool. Do you have any other uh, business? No, I'll just be self-congratulatory a little bit and say that I have a new record coming out and I'm very excited about it. I listened to the first final draft. Final draft? No. The first rough draft? Yeah, I would say rough draft. I Revised? mean, like in terms of me finally figuring out a sequencing of order to the songs and see how they flow and listen to it in the car and try not try to just let it sink in and not be too analytical about it. But then, of course, I have the J.K. Simmons in my head screaming, No! That's not quite right. And, yeah. you know, it's not going to be perfected. But I'm I'm getting to the point where I should just put it out there and let whatever happen happen and not be too um, analytical about it. Yeah. You when, know? That, when that comes out, we'll let everyone know. Yeah, it's it's going to be good. I think it's going to be very good. The song that we, start, we barely started co-writing, is that on there or is that going to have to wait? You know, at this point, I'm not sure because I'm thinking <laughs> of putting out a record that's pretty much mostly me. And then another record where I'm collaborating with a lot of people okay. and do make that more over time because I'm fairly happy with the collection of songs I have that mm-hmm. I've done thus far and they sort of flow really well together yeah. as a record. And um, I've been communicating with a lot of people more through Facebook, even some old bandmates from like high school saying, you know what? Sure, we have busy lives, but we can still record using GarageBand and yeah. Acid and you know exchange files that way. So, I mean, there's a possibility of me like doing more collaborations over the next year. And I'm excited about that because postal I miss service doing that. style. Yeah, yeah, I would actually. And that's like how postal that. service got their name. Oh yeah, because they because they were yeah. on opposite sides of the country and they would mail you have to mail each other CDs because back then like file sharing wasn't what it is now. Mm. But yeah, I'm excited. So that's that's going to be cool. And uh, stay tuned for a bonus episode that'll probably come out 
with this one or after this one yeah. that I'm very excited about too. Cool, cool, cool. Um, let's get into what we watched this month. Oh, is well, it is January? That, yeah, well, I've watched four movies so far. <gasps> in January? Mm-hmm. Wow. So in the past two days, you watched two movies each. Uh, three movies in one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's great. I try. We can't go to a guest to ask them to go first. You, I, I'm going to go ahead and say you're not a guest. You're a host. I'm welcoming you back. I did make you take a pay cut. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of the that was one of the agreements to, for you to come back was that your salary was cut by twenty percent. But other than that, and by the way, twenty percent of zero is not that much different. Yeah, that's zero. true. So, but I really like the bonus that I got the gift certificate to Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, yeah. the the parents at Chuck E. Cheese weren't so happy because they didn't mm. know what you were doing there. They didn't understand you're mostly a ski ball enthusiast. Uh yeah. <laughs> But I also just like watching the Country Bears. Oh, yeah. That's true. The, the, the Country Bears. Um, Jim, well, how about you go first? Because I really got I'm nothing. I'm scared. I got nothing. When I was stocking shitty bread for a local I always wind up choosing the movies that are very hard to talk about. And to talk and, about. And hard to say their titles, apparently. Inherent Vice. Oh, there we go. Inherent Vice. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, and I don't know if you are aware of this director named Paul Thomas Anderson, but he did direct it. And yeah, no, I've heard, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, he's like Goulardi's son, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Um. When, I hate these people who just, like, stand on the backs of their famous fathers, you know? Yeah. Like, everyone wants to go see the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie because they're like, wow, it's probably a lot like something Goulardi would make. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's like, look, look, Paul Thomas Anderson, you are no Goulardi. I don't Hot know. Um, it's strange. Does, because... does this film stay sick? <laughs> I think it does. Yeah. Has Paul Thomas Anderson stayed sick? Yeah. You know what's weird? I um he's he's my favorite director and yet his last two movies have been um I walk out with like a big question mark hanging hanging over my head. Yeah. Instead of like a light bulb or a you know. So in Inher- okay, I want to ask you just right off the bat. So inherent vice I've heard it described as like stoner noir. Pretty much. So I the two, when, when I hear stoner noir, there are two specific movies I think of which is Big Lebowski yeah. and The Long Goodbye. Yeah. Is it 
how does it relate to those two movies? Just to give me an idea of what this movie is like. Well, it's weird, you know, especially after just rewatching The Long Goodbye. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't open the way The Long Goodbye opens. Sure, well, and what movie does? There's not like I don't know. I mean, it, it, the 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 protagonist, obviously played by the great Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. he does stumble around. He's a little you know aimless and. You know, unsure of where things are going, much like we are throughout most of the movie. And I would say that it's in the spirit of those films, but not necessarily like, oh man, he total. It's not like when you watch Boogie Nights, right? Yeah, no, you know? I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect to. His style has gotten so singular. It it's, has it's weird because his style has gotten like Kubrick, but he doesn't have the coldness of Kubrick. Hmm. But maybe like, with there will be blood. I would it's say not like cold. there's a. There's a certain fury. There's like a weird bubbling fury under there. It's like throw. You know, I was like, I don't care about my kid who might be going deaf. I'm gonna go check out my oil. You know, yeah, it's, just like, I I it's hard for me to say because I don't watch Kubrick movies very often mm-hmm. because I'm not a huge fan of his coldness. So it's hard for me to like say specifically what his movies have. But like, I yeah, I do feel like There Will Be Blood was the start where he just sort of broke off and started doing this weird new enigmatic kind of style of filmmaking. Yeah, with kind of. And with with endings that don't leave you feeling satisfied or like you've had a complete experience of sorts, uh-huh. and that sort of bums me out because I, mean, I like I like a strong ending, and maybe sure. this does have a strong ending, but it just yeah, it kind of like went past. Have you me. returned to the master? Um, well, I've seen it twice at this point, and it did go a little bit higher up in my mind on a second viewing, but I really do want to watch it again after seeing Inherent Vice again. I'm sure, but. I have no idea what it's thematically trying to capture, and that bothers me a little bit. And that's a little bit like with The Master. Like, what is this movie trying to say? Um, and that's... I mean, some, it looks more comedic. Just from it the is. Trailer. It definitely is. It's definitely his funniest movie in a while. And I'm not sure... Obviously, you know, in the same spirit of kind of Altman in general is like capturing this... Um, uh, in those times in the seventies of like the, the ending of the hippie movement and just idealism kind of clashing with, uh, you know, just are the, just the times like Nixon and all that stuff. It's just cynicism. Yeah. Yeah. And it it, it captures like this sort of detached disillusionment while at the same time, kind of being sad too, you know, just like this lost hippie wandering around feeling aimless and then, of course, you have Josh Brolin playing, you know, a, a very, very stuck-up cop who kind of despises the hippie culture. Um, and Josh Brolin is almost on par with Joaquin Phoenix in this. He, it's one of his best performances. He, he definitely gives the best performance in the trailer. Oh my god! <laughs> well, yeah. So, well, I've seen the trailer, so I feel qualified to add to this conversation. And, uh, <laughs> I don't even remember the line he has, but he keeps saying it over and over again. And I kind of walked in again, thinking, okay. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson himself had brought up the Zucker brothers as being an influence for this movie, you know, top secret and uh, police squad and stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be wacky and zany. And there's going to be a lot of background gags. And there are a few, but not like wall to wall. It's not like laugh out loud, funny from beginning to end. It's got the same melancholy of the master. Yeah. I don't, I can't imagine Paul Thomas Anderson having just the, like, I think to make a movie like a Zucker brothers movie, you have to just have a clarity of vision, which is, put as much things that are funny and then remove as much things that aren't funny as possible. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine a Paul Thomas Anderson movie doing that. Not obviously I'm not saying like the master didn't have enough slapstick humor, but you know, yeah. I mean, like, but it's just, it does. It's yeah. It seems like a weird thing for him to reference. Um, 
Have you are you familiar with Thomas Pynchon? I no? have not read any of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear they're very hard to read. Yeah, I have uh, I've, his. The, the book everyone recommends is like the where you start is the crying of lot forty nine probably just short but. yeah it's it's short and it's and and it's sort of like this paranoia mm-hmm. uh, sort of conspiracy driven uh, novel and so like that just that alone appeals to me so I've tried um, reading that maybe uh, like three times and each time I never get past like page fifteen. Yeah, His, he has sentences that just go on forever, and I have ADD, so it's it's not it's it's a very sounds poor challenging. Match. Yeah, so I've never read any Thomas Pynchon, so you can't really speak to whether or not it captures. Because that was the other big thing about this movie is like it's such an ambitious thing to say you're going to adapt a writer like Thomas Pynchon. Sure, but uh, you can't really speak to how well he does that. No, I mean I don't even like. Often when I really love a movie, I'm very curious to read the book too and just yeah. compare. Um, but in this case, I'm not like itching to do it. And it's just one of those movies where scene to scene, it's great. And it's a lot of fun. And even somebody that you hate, like Martin Short, yeah. um, you know, has his five minutes and is actually really great. Not is being he, he wacky, Martin, zany, over the top. No, I'm totally he's comedic, him. but not in sure, the same sure. way. Not in the I same mean, way. Well, you know. Mike Myers, I'm not a huge fan of, but Mike Myers in Inglorious Bastards is comedic, but not like yes. Mike Myersing it up. Yeah, that's like, a good comparison. I would so say to that. I could but, take I could take Martin Short if 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 he had a director like Paul Thomas Anderson, to like take him aside and be like, "Don't dance like that." <laughs> and like and like the Big Lebowski, I think it has all these different complications and characters popping up to make it seem like the plot is very complicated. When I bet if I watch it a second time, I'm like, oh yeah, this is actually very simple. You know, yeah. in terms of like. Who did what to what and how things get resolved? Well, that's sort and, of a noir thing, right? Like, the, yeah, the big sleep is just like notoriously convoluted and impossible mm-hmm. to follow. And those, those, yeah, those movies tend to have just like a hundred characters coming in and distracting things. I mean, that was sort of the genius of the Big Lebowski was that it has sort of the bewilderment you feel watching a noir um, transposed onto a main character who's just so stoned that he literally isn't comprehending anything. Right. And I mean, so like. Uh, how close? Is, like, would you say it? It follows like the Big Lebowski, or is it? it yeah, but it's not. Abs- it's not as absurd. Sure, for sure, it doesn't have like a crazy, you know, um, dance number in the middle of it. You know, a Buzzley Berkeley dance number or anything. It's just the, there are moments, especially like there's sequences involving very long takes, like one that just sort of slowly zooms into Owen Wilson and Joaquin Phoenix talking at a table and. There's this weird feeling of paranoia between them and the way the shot just keeps going on and on and on. And while they're talking, they're talking about paranoia and like, you know, are we being listened to? And for some reason, like, I felt anxiety during that scene, but did not know why specifically. Uh And I thought, okay, this is what Paul Thomas Anderson does so well to me is that he makes me feel a feeling, even if I don't understand the context exactly, or I don't understand why it's occurring. It's just... He is a very emotionally driven director, and that's what I respond to in my favorite movies in general. And I just like that he goes for the feeling rather than like logic. So even if so, the plot movie doesn't make sense. You know no. what you're supposed to be feeling. Yeah, I would say so. I felt like the master. There was a lot of times I didn't know what I was supposed to be feeling. The ending. I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling. The ending of pretty Inherent much. Vice. Pre- yeah, well, pretty much. Yeah, Inherent Vice and the Master. Um, yeah. From the point of where, like, I think even the first time I saw the Master, I didn't know it was a dream that he was having in the movie theater. Um, you remember that in in the master where he's sitting in a movie theater, 
um, watching a movie, and then uh, I guess an usher brings him the telephone and says that Philip Seymour Hoffman wants oh, him to come to be back. A dream? Yeah, I only watched it the one time. <laughs> I, I, I took it as I just but, took it as granted because there's other weird surreal touches throughout the yeah. movie, like the like the weird dance where suddenly everyone's getting naked. And there's yeah, and there's Is that, that supposed to be a dream too, or I'm assuming it's just his point of view, like okay. him just being lustful in that sure. moment, but um. It, there's moments in Inherent Vice where you're like, what? Why? There was somebody sitting in the car and now they're gone and you don't really get a specific reason why. It's just okay. – you just feel like, okay, well, you know, this dude's on a lot of drugs and you're sort of in his state of mind and you're just kind of going along for the ride not knowing what's going to happen next. I mean I love those surreal touches. You know, like there's, there's a lot lots of, of them. There's a lot about Magnolia that I don't really respond to but I'm I'm never going to say like I don't love that, uh, you know, musical moment at the middle. Ugh, I love yeah. the frogs raining from the sky. I love that camera push into the, to the little car that says but it did happen. Like – Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot. That's of, a very Altman thing to do, I think. Uh, yeah, kind of a little bit. Um, yeah, I guess. It, yeah, Altman. God, Altman was playful in that way. Yeah, where Altman would remind you that you're watching a movie. Pretty much. I never, con- I never like, connected that to Altman, but I think you're right. Like with three women, I'm like, why are we pointing, going over here right now or something? Like, there's just moments, and that's probably why it's my favorite Altman movie. Where I'm just like, it's a lot of what the fuck moments, but I'm still like astonished. Yeah. Three women's definitely him and his most surreal. Unless you count like, like beyond therapy, like surreal, but it's also just madcap. Oh, whereas like it doesn't beyond women doesn't feel like a dream. It just feels, it just feels like the, everyone involved making the movie is fucking with you for some reason. (laughs) I could get behind madcap and surreal if it's most like, you should, you should watch it. It's not, it's not nearly his funniest movie. It doesn't have a lot of, the strength that a lot of his movies have, but it is it's be it's bewildering in a and I think a fun way. A good yeah, way. And, and it's his queerest movie. It's a very queer. Oh, movie. interesting. I'm okay. assuming that the play it's based on by Christopher Durang is just the same because mm. it's just like Jeff Goldblum is bisexual in it, and he's torn between this woman he just met who's in love with and the, and his gay like and his gay lover that he stayed that he lives with, and there's just a lot of I mean for an '80s movie, it's just like a lot of talking about. Uh, queerness that it's just huh. you don't expect. Okay. It's not necessarily like enlightened. It's it just again it just feels like the whole movie's mm-hmm. fucking with you. But it's it, I still like that. Yeah, I mean, it, like we were talking with the master. There's a certain point where you know um, he's in the movie theater, and then we go back to him meeting with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and then he sings the song to him. Like all that giant question mark again, and I don't yeah. understand it, and I want to. Um, and then same with inherent vice, like the last 10 to 15 minutes, especially I'm not giving anything away, but it's just a a moment where you are not sure whether to laugh or if it's sad or what involving Josh Brolin coming back. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. And I, I was laughing, but I was still confused again and felt like, okay, what's going to happen from this point on? And I didn't understand it. And I don't know if he's just like, intentionally making these enigmatic endings just to yeah. fuck with people. I mean, and if he is, that's kind of, that kind of bugs me. Yeah, like if I it's mean, being forcefully know, like, weird just I, to be weird. There's a, it, it's a really hard needle to thread, right? Cause like three women, I don't know necessarily what that ending means. I don't either. I don't necessarily have, so I love it. <laughs> well, yeah. But here's but this thing. Like, do you have like a strong, like even if you don't know literally what the ending is suggesting, do you have like a strong feeling about what it means? Like I'd like to, I'd like to think so. I hope well, so. Okay, I, mean, I don't know. Not, not to, not to cut into the Altman conversation, but like, because to me, like that, that is just be well. Like I love it too, but I, I couldn't tell you 
what like we were talking about me and uh, Sarah Argadale on the book adaptation episode where we were talking about this idea of like for me I all the time I watch movies and there's something uh, some inexplicable really strong emotion I get and I can't sell say what I can't give you a context for why I feel that way or why I'm or why I feel so strongly in that way it just happens yeah and there's something about um the ending of three women that makes me feel really warm, but kind of sad. Yeah. But I literally have no idea what it means <laughs> in any way. And I don't, and I was like, I don't know what to think. And that's, I th- I'm trying to feel like that's a plus with Paul Thomas Anderson's last two movies. Like because he is my favorite filmmaker and I want to give him the benefit of the sure. doubt. There's gotta be a reason for feeling bewildered by what he's doing with these last two movies. And I mean, even there will be, there will be blood feels perfect just because it is the most insane, yeah. angry, violent ending. Mm-hmm. And it's so striking and it's just so strange. But like, if you actually think about it in the context of the rest of the movie, I don't think it necessarily is like, Oh yeah, that's how this movie had to, had to end. Like, yeah, it just, it feels like this, like he came up with this brilliant visual idea of Daniel Plainview lying on a bowling alley with someone mm-hmm. dead, you know, like, <laughs> and like, he's like, all right, now I need to work there. And, right. And he goes, Oh, what if Eli came back and then he kills him in the bowling pen or whatever? Like, like that final image where he just yells, I'm finished is so strong that I don't think it necessarily means anything important. No. I, like, I mean, then again, that is where I differ from a lot of people who really love Paul Thomas Anderson is in that. I don't think there will be blood is necessarily a super strong movie thematically, but, uh, but I mean, like, that, but that Capital, works, but capitalism, that, religion, yeah, you know, like I it, mean... It, it dabbles, but it doesn't really have a strong thesis, which is, you know, not all movies need. But, like, that ending works for me, even though I don't think it really amounts all that much just because it's so strong. Whereas, like, the yeah. ending of The Master, it just sort of does this weird fade-out, which is not, you know, not every movie has to end, like, <laughs> there will be blood. That would be insane. That would be, mm-hmm. that would be the weirdest thing ever if, like, you know, like... I, I, I watch like I see like a Bollywood movie and I'm, and you wonder like <laughs> what the culture of like what the film history of Bollywood is and one day I'd love to I mean I feel we'd be so I eventually we eventually will I assume we, we're I feel we would be so out of our depth that we would have to approach it in a specific way so we would or find a guest that would be an yeah, expert like, that yeah, can enlighten have to us find some kind of guest who's an expert in Bollywood but like I I, I saw a Bollywood movie and I was just like I wonder what the history of this film industry is so that this is how you, cause it was like some story about a father and son reuniting, mm-hmm. but it was three hours long and there were just two musical numbers in it. that were both eight minutes long. Like that, that is how you tell that story. And I love, I love the idea of an alternate version of, <laughs> of Hollywood where instead of jaws, there was, there will be blood. And therefore it's like, well, you know, it's a big summer movie. You got to end, <laughs> you got to, you got to have some crazy final 10 minutes that <laughs> like this little coda yeah. with like the weirdest, most striking image ever. Yeah. I mean, but, I'm a big fan of ambiguity. I'm a big fan of yeah. endings that are head scratchers. Um, like, what I'm saying is they don't all need to be like that. That'd be insane. right. Right. But, right. Like, right. But the master just was like, it's a weird fade out. I'd love to. I should watch The Master again. My only thing is, God, that movie's so gorgeous, and you you see my TV. It's not that big. Just you gotta watch it on Blu-ray. Yeah, I gotta, get a, I gotta get a Blu-ray, and I gotta I gotta like find someone with a nice TV. Uh, well, I mean, their place. Yeah, I will say Inherent Vice does follow the the same pattern of like being gorgeous and confusing, and but I mean, I. 
Joaquin Phoenix. Be- between between this yeah. and the master, like I have not seen performances of this caliber come out of any actor, and I don't know how long. And I've, they're very I've different. Heard, I heard he was good in The Immigrant too. Regina said he's really good in The Immigrant yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, he is. He is very good. I just he's just doing really odd, almost like Andy Kaufman esque kind of things in this what movie. That, well, just like weird comedic choices that just seem out of left field that kind of feel. And I've even it's probably because I've heard in interviews that you know Paul Thomas Anderson just lets him do his thing without much interference, and often, um, you know, he'll come up to Joaquin and or like in the middle of a take, and Joaquin's like, "Dude, I'm doing my thing. I'm acting right now. You just don't know it." Like what? Because he thought it was like a long pause, and what? Maybe he forgot his line, oh, or, yeah, you know. Yeah. And he's just doing odd, peculiar, eccentric things that really enhance just the hallucinatory experience of the movie. And it's, you're, it's just so bizarre that Joaquin Phoenix, his, his career path will be precisely the same as Nicholas Cage's where like Nicholas Cage was sort of doing that. But then Nicholas Cage like stumbled into these, God, uh, I hope Joaquin these, like, Phoenix Jerry doesn't Bruck- do make like Con Air. Yeah, like he, yeah. He like stumbled these like Jerry Bruckheimer, big action movies. And then now like, man, the, like, yeah, we're talking alternate Hollywood histories. Joaquin Phoenix slowly like fades out of art films and fades oh. into like <laughs> like whatever whatever uh, action films are filling like the Tony Scott like can you <laughs> like you know the no. movie Denzel Washington makes once a year like <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix just acting as crazy and buggy as possible <laughs> that'd be great I no I I think Joaquin Phoenix is terrific I I really am excited to see this movie as much I, as, as much as I like to kid you about Paul Thomas Anderson. Just, oh, it's just in good fun. Well, it's also just I, I I don't find him his work so superlative that I understand why him as opposed to any other filmmaker when he's about to release a movie, people start losing their minds. Like I feel like I felt like especially this year, and maybe it was just because there wasn't any one movie that like totally killed everyone this year. Like there yeah. wasn't any one movie that everyone just decided, yeah, that was the movie of the year. Like people were really had high hopes for Inherent Vice because they wanted that like the buzz of like that big movie that everyone's talking about. And I don't know if this is going to be it. Cause everything I've heard about inherent vice, it says it's going to be too fucking weird yeah. to be that. It's not going to be the, there will be blood of this year. No, definitely not. But, um, I, maybe that's the reason everyone's saying, but I feel like especially this year, everyone was just for the past from like October all the way to December. Like all anyone could talk about on Twitter was inherent vice and every little, every little new detail they'd get from inherent vice and every new trailer and every new teaser and every new image and, Oh man, like I kind of that's over it. I don't know why. Like I mean, again, maybe it's just like okay, that's how people get about Star Wars, and I get that way about Paul Thomas Anderson well, no, movies. I'm just saying, like, but that, but like, I mean, I don't get that way about any movie just because I've never had that payoff. I've never. There are some people like our friend Stephen Ray Morris. Stephen Ray Morris is obsessed with Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park was just like the most important movie to him as a child. Mm-hmm. And he loves the world of Jurassic Park. He has this YouTube video. I follow him on Twitter. So this is how I know. He has this YouTube video series where he's like unwrapping tops Jurassic Park cards from the nineties. And he's like showing you the cards and stuff like he, and Jurassic world trailer came out. Oh, he's boy. so psyched about Jurassic world. Every, I see him constantly like retweeting and replying to things that are like new big pieces of Jurassic world. And like, I think that's how a lot of people cultivate fandom, right? Like, a lot of people are just, like, it's 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 this little, um, oh, fuck, what's the Japanese bush uh, that you 
Oh, um, bonsai. Yeah, it's like a bonsai tree. They, yeah. they, it's like they cultivate their fandom, and they're just they, and then like, and and then it pays off, and they finally get it. Like, you know, and there it is, and there's the movie. And just of, just and, wait till True Detective season two starts. Oh uh, yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure. True Detective season two. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's exactly the sort of thing that's going to spark that. And now I've, you know, on a side note, I've become that way about Hannibal. Like oh, I. Yeah. I've as much like, as I'm as much, have you been like reading a lot about previews for upcoming seasons well, of Hannibal? Or I think it's the show that has like become my Breaking Bad right now. And yeah. as much as I love True Detective, I thought the ending was a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, not like hugely so to where I turned. But I was just kind of like, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, it's, you know, I liked it a lot. But True Detective bites off a lot. Like True yeah. Detective is in its tone and in its sort of approach and those first few episodes where you're sort of first getting a handle of how things are going mm-hmm. and the way it parcels that information to you, it really does promise like something really game changing. Yeah. And then the ending is just like, Oh, that's that pretty good. Yeah. I just have so. like a, a crazy strong investment now with what's going on on Hannibal. And I never thought that would happen. Like I so started watching that. Yeah. I started watching that show with the lowest expectations. Cause I'm not even the biggest silence oh, of Lambs really? fan. And I was just like, everyone eh. loves that show. And then I started here, and then I saw like AV Club. Okay, it's the number one show of the year, and I'm like, okay, I guess I better start watching it. And once I did, I saw what everybody's going nuts about. Yeah, and it is the best looking show I've ever seen. I like in terms of the cinematography, it is mind blowing. Like I insist on buying those Blu-rays, mm-hmm. and that's not something I do anymore. Like I'm not the biggest collector, right. but especially not in te- television. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just – it's not necessarily that television is inherently worse because, you know, television is shot for HD TVs now. Yeah. now. But, like, it's just the schedule of television doesn't lend itself to beautiful-looking films the way the schedule of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie right. lends itself to looking beautiful. So, no, I've, I've heard nothing but, like, insane praise for yes. Hannibal. So at this point – like my approach just for my own safety is I'm going to wait till the series is done. Yeah, I will. And I'm going to like wait till everyone's done talking about it for a year and then I'm going to watch it. And, and you're going to borrow like, my Blu-rays and yeah, enjoy Yeah, I'm going to borrow your Blu-rays and I'm going to be like, guys, this show's really like, well, like I did with The Sopranos. I'm like, yeah. this show's really good. And yeah. it's like, yeah, no, we know. We, we, we were obsessed with that show for four years mm-hmm. before you ever heard of it. Um, but so I've never had an experience where I like invested a lot in something like that and to the build up and then it pays off and I'm like, Oh, that was worth it. I'm so glad that I I'm so glad that I made that this movie was so good that I'm so glad I made this movie, you know, my obsession for the past four months or whatever. That sure. never paid off for me. I've never had that experience. So I think there's potentially like that movie could exist. Like um I don't know. Uh Ryan Johnson or Edgar Wright's like gonna direct a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Like someone who's just like really clever and has like a really good i really good mind for like gags and humor and stuff, and like someone who they would never step into that arena unless they had something really good to do with it. Mm-hmm. Like if something like that happened, like Edgar Wright doing Nightmare on Elm Street, which is my favorite horror movie series, I could see myself freaking out over that and geeking out over that and wanting sure. to be a bit of. Deep. I assume you but were a little bit like that with Scott Pilgrim, but not, not like really. to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I had no faith in Scott Pilgrim as a movie ah. because. That book series is all about, like, that book series to me is about what it's like to be in a relationship and to sort of, like, it's it's sort of about the arc of intimacy and you're sort of first getting to know someone, you really like them, but you don't want to let them know and then eventually you're together and you just want to gush all the time about how much you like each other because you're safe in the knowledge that they like you too and then eventually you don't have to say it anymore and you're just sort of together mm-hmm. and then, like... 
the whole thing about Scott Pilgrim to me was about that arc, and that just takes time. And yeah, it could have been a ten episode miniseries. Yeah, I did not think it would work as a feature film, and it and you know I think there's a lot of things about that movie that are amazing, but I don't think it worked as a feature film. So I wasn't that way about Scott Pilgrim, even though I love the graphic novels. Yeah, I feel like. You know, I, I built up in my mind the idea of Michelle Gondry doing Master of Space and Time, one of my all-time favorite books, if not my favorite book, by Rudy Rucker. And at this point, because I I don't it even was, know what Michelle Gondry... Was he Gond- to it? Or he was like for, a, for a while. Cool, it was yeah. crazy, like me actually reading the book, loving it, putting it down, and thinking to myself, Michelle Gondry should direct this. Then like a week later going on IMDb and seeing that he was attached to it. And I was just like, oh my god. And I built that up in my mind. But now it's I don't think it's ever going to happen. And I don't even know if I'd be that excited about it because I haven't really been excited about a Michelle Gondry movie in a while. I, at a certain point in my head, it was, I think it was shortly after I saw Myth of the American Sleepover and I was just thinking about oh, Robert Mitchell all the time. I was just like, oh, man, this guy's going places. This guy's great. And apparently, you know, his – He should do a horror movie. No, apparently, apparently his next movie is going to be great. But, That's what I hear. Yeah, like everyone's saying that movie's great, so I can't wait for that to come out. And I, I contact him on Twitter after I saw Myth of American Sleepover. I'm like, I want to talk to you about this movie on my podcast. And he's like, well, I'm kind of busy doing this other movie right now. Maybe some other time? And I'm like, all right, cool. And I was like, you're other movie. And then it turns out that other movie is uh, what? It's, it's, it follows. It follows. That's it. Which but, um, everybody seems to rave about. And, you, you know, Mike D'Angelo loved it. Yeah, so, sure. I mean, I'm I'm – it, that's one of the most anticipated movies for me now. So, but in my head, when I was sort of thinking about like, where could this guy go? Like, where's this guy's career going? I, I get that way about directors sometimes where I get really excited about. Oh yeah. Even potential. the guy who did Oculus. I was like, yeah, cool. yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like given the right, you know, uh, given the right circumstances, that people who made Oculus could do something like just really incredible. Um, but, and I was thinking like, oh man, if David Robert Mitchell did black hole, have you seen that? Have you read that graphic novel? No. It is teen I've angst. Heard it's, of like, it. it's like free floating teen depression and angst. Yeah. But also there's like an STD that's mutating people and the mutants leave their like suburban town and start living in the woods on the offskirts of the suburban town. Oh, that and sounds really good. It's about drugs and, and, and just like, yeah, just, it's just about Damn. the bewilderment of high school. And for a while, David Fincher was attached to direct it, which I thought was a terrible mistake because David Fincher, like, it's so, like, to me it's needed such a human touch because it was such a personal story. Like, like, I don't think I've read anything that, that felt more like high school that, like, depicted high school more accurately to me than Black Hole. Mm. And then I was, and all, but I also haven't seen anything. And you haven't read Perks of the Being Wallflower. Well, I, you know what? My, <laughs> I have a, I have a coworker um, named Juan and he has, he has not great taste in movies, but uh, he insisted that I see Perch Bean Wallflower, and I was like, I finally gave in because I'm like, you know what? I've actually heard this is good, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you Brick because I think you should see Brick. And he gave me the Blu-ray for Perch Bean Wallflower, and I said, Aww. All right, you watch this. I'll watch Perch Bean Wallflower. And he watched Brick, and it's been like four months. And I haven't watched Perch Bean Wallflower <laughs> yet, but as soon as we're done with this episode, I'm gonna try to watch it. But like, yeah. So I invented this fictional scenario in my head in which David Robert Mitchell gets to make Black Hole, which. I don't know if he cares about that. I don't know if Black Hole's even in the running to be made. I don't know anything, but, like, it would take something. Like, it would take a phenomenal, uh, like, just a uh, combination of artist and property to, for me to, like, really commit to geeking mm-hmm. out over it. I'm, I'm fickle. That's the other thing. I'm kind of fickle in a lot. Of, like, I like Mountain Goats, one of my favorite, probably my favorite band recording music right now. 
I haven't listened to their last two albums. <laughs> you know, like yeah, I'm really loyal in that I, regard. I try to like listen to everything that they put out, yeah, or I you just, know, I just, I just have like, you read his book? Oh yeah, yeah, I just finished his book. Oh good. It's that's <laughs> speaking of speaking of movies, speaking of uh, things that David uh, David Robert Mitchell could make into a movie. Uh, Wolf in White Van. Mm. Have you have you have you read it? No, I'm going to. It's one like number it? one. No, I should. I'll lend it to you. Nice. It's 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 pretty short. It's. Oh, it is. It's intense. It's really good, and it's also like if you have followed John Darnell, then you'll just recognize like, mm-hmm. a lot of the characters. Not necessarily because they're literally characters in his songs, but the kind of people and the kind of things they're obsessed with. Like the best, the best ever death metal band out of Denton. Like you could in an alternate history, one of those guys became the protagonist <laughs> of Wolf and White Band. Nice. So what have you seen? Oh God, nothing. I've been watching a lot of Altman movies. I saw um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Uh, just before I came here, I wasn't a big fan. It's it's sort of like the second Jim Jarmusch vampire movie to come out this year. Uh, it just it mostly just felt like the influences Jim Jarmusch and like all the all the stuff I'd read about it is like you know like one of the most unusual films to come out this year. It's like a, an odd amalgamation of things, and you know it's it's part western and part noir and part horror, and it's and then mm-hmm. like I saw it, I'm like actually it's mostly just Jim Jarmusch. Like oh, it just okay. feels like an old Jim Jarmusch movie, um, mixed with Nicholas Winding Refn. But like, if Nicholas Winding Refn and Jim Jarmusch had a really cool Iranian baby, <laughs> um, so I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't big on it, but uh, it is stylish. Um, Regina liked it a lot more than I did. Um, so you know, and it's you know, people like it. So I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it, but yeah, I will. I will. It, at felt, some point. it felt a little too beholden to its influences mm. for me to be really into it. I watched mm. Willow Creek last night. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I liked it, but not a whole lot. I was, just, I was I, impressed. It, just, I, it was exciting because Bobcat, because Bobcat Goldthwait, he made Shakes the Clown, which is a movie I like a lot because it's just so weird. Yeah, it's so abrasive and weird, and it's but it's not like a great comedy. It's I I really like it for what it is, mm-hmm. but it's not like a fantastic movie. Whereas I I think World's Greatest Dad is legitimately great comedy. I I think World's Greatest Dad is really good. There's something about it that feels like. There's just moments in it that it's hard for me to put into words, but they feel a little too generic indie, I guess. Like generic dark indie mm. comedy. Like there's parts I don't know, there's certain lines of dialogue. There's certain parts of it. It I think it's a really good movie, but there but it's not a movie that I'm like in love with. I kinda am. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. It's really, and then really on good. the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I hated God Bless America. Yeah, so. yeah. God Bless America looked terrible. I didn't see it's that at terrible. all. So like after that, I was like, I don't know where I don't know where Bobcat Goldthwait is as a filmmaker. And he made this movie, which is not a comedy, but like it's a filmmaker made this movie. Like he he didn't just like the way most found footage movies get made is oh we don't have the budget to make that horror film. Well, what if we made a found footage? Oh, okay, well, let's do that. And then. Oh, let's just change the script so it like barely justifies people holding a camera. Um, whereas, like, this is just feels like he thought of this movie in its entirety, in its conception. This is the beginning. This is the middle. This is the end. Um, they're real characters. They're like real people. They're not just assholes you're waiting to get killed off. Um, I mean, it's it's no Blair Witch Project, but but like, there's a lot of really good little details that like my one of my favorite things about Blair Witch Project before it ever becomes a horror movie is that really great cheesy film school acting that that Heather does mm-hmm. when she's like, this is where the Blair Witch was. And she's like sort of waving her hand slowly and she's like kind of stilted. 
Um, yeah. And so like that, and there's moments in Willow Creek where like it's yeah. just all about the it's just about the weird details of them trying to make a documentary and him being too dorky and not knowing what he's doing. Yeah. Interviewing and people and stuff and, and just yeah. being a bad interviewer. Yeah. Like there's point, there's scenes that aren't about like exposition and they're not about building up tension. They're just about like <laughs> showing that this character is kind of a doofus and that he's a bad interviewer. And like, right. there's like, there's little details in that that just, that help it immensely. Like that put it way above most found footage movies. There's a little bit of that in afflicted. I, I, I think afflicted is a little more slick mm-hmm. than this. Like this feels like someone could have found this footage. Was Lake Mungo found footage? No. Lake okay. Mungo is a mockumentary. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Last Exorcism is a, is a mash. It's sort of a mix. Yeah. It starts off as a mockumentary, and then it turns into found footage towards the end. Right. Um, but, like, like there's a just it just felt, like, really sturdy. It just felt like it had an integrity to it that I just really responded to. And then, like, this is how I know he's a fucking filmmaker, because he made the craziest choice you could possibly make and he committed to this thing that could have totally blown up in his face, which is there's a shot in this movie in which the camera is still. Yeah. It is 19 minutes long and you don't see anything other than the couple, the main couple of the movie huddled in a tent. Yeah. And reacting to sound and reacting to sound. It is 19 minutes long. The movie is 79 minutes long. It is a quarter of the movie. Right. A full fourth of the movie is this one shot and it is so tense. Mm hmm. It's insane. It's, it's my so favorite good. thing in the movie. The timing of that... Well, I mean, yeah. And, like, people say, like, oh, yeah, it had that one great scene. But, like, that one great scene is a quarter of the movie. That I one know. great scene is one of the most monumentally just, like, daring moves I've mm-hmm. ever se- I've seen in a horror movie in the past, like, ten years. Other than, you know, something like Strange Color, Your Body's Tears, which is just the whole... <laughs> the entirety of that movie is insane. A movie I've tried to watch. You couldn't get through it? I will at some point. I <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> I'm like, I like weird stuff. I like surreal stuff. I just, I don't know. What is this? Where is this going? What's happening? You got to abandon It's just a visual. You have to abandon it. You know, like pinata. Do not go into Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, like, expecting everything to be put together. Like, I'm sure it actually does make sense. I'm sure there is a logic to the plot, but that's not its strength. It's it's definitely a weak plot, and the characters you don't care about. Whereas, like, something like Barbarian Sound Studio, I could follow yeah, it. Yeah, Barbarian Sound Studio is, like, it's about the what this character is feeling. It's about yeah. this character's arc. Barbarian but, Sound... Like, I'd put them... If you like Barbarian Sound Studio, you would probably be the kind of person who would also like Strange Color Your Body's Tears, but they're not doing the same I thing. I guess I just have to be in the mood, and I will sit down and watch it when I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think I will like it. It's just... Uh, I How far in did you get? Just 15 minutes. Okay. Did you, did you see the sequence with the old man and the old woman um, and mm. where one is upstairs and one's downstairs. No. Get through that. Okay. Get, I think it, you have to watch, sit like 30 minutes through the movie. That's, that sequence alone is just one of the greatest horror sequences I've ever seen in my life. It is so hmm. ingenious. And there's a lot of this movie in uh, Strange Color of Your Body's Tears that's so ingenious, but it's not, <laughs> it's, but it doesn't add up to anything other than just total madness. Okay. Um, but stick through it till at least that. And if, and if that doesn't really do it for you, if you're not completely sold after that, then just give up because that's the high point and it's a little early in. Yeah. I just have to discipline myself. Sure. For something like that. Sure. But like, so, but anyway, go back to Willow, Willow Creek. Like, you know, when that scene starts in the tent, you just think, okay, I've seen this before. This is Blair Witch. What happens is they're hearing sounds. They don't know what it is. It's freaky. There's some sort of incident, and then 
They wake up the next day. They find weird evidence, like something, like the animal torn in half. Like, well, how, how could that animal be torn out? Like, you know, things that are... And then it just goes on over a course of a couple days. Mm-hmm. But literally, that's the entire movie right there. Like, the entirety of the scares in that movie are in that 19-minute sequence. It's so... It's so ballsy. Yeah. I can't believe that Bobcat Goldthwait, of all people, did that. And... Like, I have so much respect for that. I don't think the ending is great. No. I don't think the movie itself adds up to that much. No. I don't think the performances in it are, like, touch the brilliant performances in Blair Witch Project. But, like, will I? if there's something I, if there's something different and there's something unique and there's something daring and there's something, like, a real risk that someone takes in a horror movie, like, no one takes risks in horror movies. Everyone just sticks to the cliches and then they throw in, like, a little bit of a twist and maybe it has this little bit of a tone and maybe it has this plot twist at the end and maybe... It, you know, it has this kind of cool music or whatever, but people always play it safe in horror movies, which is weird because it's like antithetical to the idea of watching a horror movie is that you've seen this before and you know what's going to mm-hmm. happen. You want to be surprised. But like people always play it safe, and Bobcat Goldthwait did not play it safe at all, and I have so much respect for that. It's not going to be in my top 10. It's, I don't think it's in my top 25 of the year, but it's, I really like Willow Creek. Well, as you know, I love balls. Yeah. I really respond to balls. Mostly. Well, and, I think there there is full frontal male nudity in Will, Willow Creek. That's true. There is that. But I mean, just like uh, audacity. And when, yeah. you know, like Paul Thomas Anderson, when he's just like, I dare you to, you know, respond to something as crazy as frogs falling from the sky or just like weird choices. And I, I definitely admire that the about frog, Popkin. The frogs fall from the sky. And then he anticipates the audience going, oh, what the, well, this is bullshit. This didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, but you this sit, did happen. You sit your ass down. This did happen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, he even like talked to Phil Baker Hall. Was like, yeah, I was in Europe somewhere, and frogs fell from the sky. You yeah. know, it's just okay. That happened. You know, and that's just. I I definitely like in the past, even with something like World's Greatest Dad, I thought it was kind of a ballsy movie. No, that is that. No, it and, is ballsy, but it's not like. I don't think it's the pitch black nihilistic dark comedy that some people. I think it is. I don't know. Maybe it is. And I'm just being cynical because everyone likes it because the presence of Ron Williams means I automatically add like a layer of schmaltz that isn't there because it's just because every other Robin Williams like drama or comedy, there's a layer of like schmaltzy, like earnest. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think it doesn't really reach that until the very last shot. And I think it's actually earned in world's greatest dad, to be honest. I I think it might just be, I don't like his relationship with the neighbor woman. That to me seems like indie, Indie Playbook 101, <laughs> where, like, like oh, we like zombie movies, but we like real zombie movies, not these poser zombie movies that are out now. I'm going to quote Simon Pegg, and then they turn to the camera and wink because the audience get knows who Simon Pegg is, and they're real cool. Like, I think that's literally the only thing that makes me suspect of that movie, which maybe means I'm full of shit. But like, yeah, and, and God like Bless that. America is nothing but that. Yeah, I, pretty much. God Bless America sounds it's like, dreadful. let's reference this and let's reference that. And, you know, boy, we hate the world. It sucks. That's pretty much all that movie. It's like Natural Born Killers, only with a lot of pop culture references. Yeah. You know? And, and it doesn't seem right to me because I don't think Bobcat Goldthwait is uh, misanthropic, like just based on his other films. Like he made a he made a movie about in his interviews he kind of comes across that way. Oh a really? Bit. I've never listened to interviews. So yeah, I guess not. Oh, I, I've listened to some, but I, I guess he I complains a lot. Some. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, you, you're right there, but I guess just in his films, mm-hmm. like Shakes the Clown doesn't come across as misanthropic. No, uh, Sleeping Dogs Lie is certainly not the work of someone who hates. Oh people. yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Um, certainly, World's Greatest Dad mm-hmm. is not. Misanthropic. Right. There, it, it has a lot of feeling to it. 
And Willow Creek is not misanthropic. It's not like, here are these assholes, and they're going to get chewed up because they fucking deserve it, the little shits. Like, <laughs> like, no, Willow Creek, you actually really care about these people. And there's that amazing scene right before the 19-minute scene in the tent where, like, he proposes. And there's just this really painful but honest and not, like, not. it's not trying to make you upset or awkward. It's just, the. It, there's just this weird moment of real-life messiness where, um, the, the, the guy proposes to the girl and she's says, I don't think I'm ready to get married, but we should move in together. Like it's this weird kind of compromise that you can tell neither one are particularly satisfied with walking with how they walk away from that. But it's just, it works. Cause it's, it's just like, what, why is this in my found footage, Bigfoot horror movie? Like, it's so good. Like that's, that's the kind of character building stuff that I think most horror movies should have because yeah. that's what makes things scary is that you don't want these people to be hurt and you can relate to them and you can imagine yourself huddled in a tent with someone scared stiff and not being able to move. Well, that's how I felt during the Babadook. Yeah? Yeah. Oh my God. Babadook's it was like, were good. Yeah. Also, I watched uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh, Never heard of it. On Christmas. Oh, did you have yourself a very Merry Christmas? Merry Wait. Little Christmas? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> A Merry Little Christmas. That is the... That's the best Christmas movie. Mmm. It's not a Christmas movie. <laughs> Let me back it up a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, you watch uh, Odd Things on Christmas, you know? There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that's odd. It, it has, to me, the strongest sequence. Christmas well, yeah. sequence yeah. in any No, yeah, movie. I would agree with that for sure. And, I mean, the feelings, to me, you associate with, like, December and the new year coming up yeah. and stuff, is you start to think, look back at the year and, like... Where was I? Yeah, where was I January 2013? Like, where mm-hmm. was I? Now I'm, now I'm, or where was I January 2014? Now I'm about to be January 2015. Like, that's, that's weird. Like, yeah. man, I didn't expect all these things to happen. Like, and that's, that to me is what Meet Me in St. Louis is all about. So I'm just going to say, like, if you haven't seen Meet Me in St. Louis and you're like, you know, I like a lot of the movies you guys talk about, but I'm just, like, I just can't get into movies from the 40s. This movie is so modern. Meet Me in St. Louis is so funny. And it's so modern, and it's it's feminist, and it's got the greatest precocious little kid character in the history of film. That's uh, true. Um, and it's got this amazing sequence, which is maybe my favorite part. It's, it has both my favorite Christmas sequence in film history and my favorite Halloween sequence in film history. Uh, other, than, you know, other than the movie Halloween. But yeah. like that, that whole Halloween sequence in Meet in St. Louis is fucking amazing. And like even my dad, who doesn't really like movies that much, and he certainly... You know, he gets bored easily. Like, he, he sat down. He was really getting to meet, meet me in St. Louis. He's, he was going ring, ring, ring with the trolley. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was he's singing along. Char- he was doing the Charleston. Oh, wow. Uh, it was fantastic. He was no, eating a Charleston chew. It's Meet Me in St. Louis. Like, if you like a Christmas story, actually. It was funny because I had never seen a Christmas story. And I still would say, <laughs> no, it's true. Because I didn't see it as a kid. And I don't watch kids' movies now because I don't trust anyone's opinion on kids' movies that they saw as a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's, that's how people are going to... No, Goonies is actually really good. It isn't good. Goonies no, it's not good. good. We know, but you got to see Princess Bride. Uh, maybe that's good, but it's probably not as good as... I'm probably not going to like it the way you do, because you saw it as a kid. Like, you know, so I don't watch kids' movies, but A Christmas Story is a big part of uh, Regina's Christmas tradition, so it was on the TV while we were making cookies and stuff like that, oh. and like, and I watched a lot of scenes from it, and it's great yeah it's hilarious it is and it's got this great it's nostalgic without being sentimental mm-hmm. and that is exactly what um meet me in st louis is Such i mean there's it's not meet me in st louis is not totally without sentiment but like it's it's got a healthy uh dose of sarcasm in there mm-hmm. too it has one of my favorite line deliveries by darren mcgavin what's that not a finger 
I just love his delivery of that line. Is that in A Christmas Story? Yeah. Okay. Darren McGavin plays one of the best dads I was going to say, I don't remember Darren McGavin and Meet Me in St. Louis. Maybe he played one of the little kids. (laughs) You know me. I flash back in my brain, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, yeah, i got to bring that up, even though we're not talking about that in the moment. But anyway, yeah, I love Christmas Story and Meet Me in St. Louis. And we're also going to be doing Stanley Donan real soon. So I finally get to see Singing in the Rain in its entirety. You're kidding me, though, right? You've never seen Singing in the Rain start to finish? No. Our, the podcast is over! The face you're making right now, I can't tell if you're fucking with me. Maybe I am? No, I... <laughs> no, no, okay, tell me the truth. No, I've okay. seen it. You have seen yeah, it? Yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. Well, honest, the, since we're uh, transitioning, I hadn't watched Nashville from beginning to end until today! Well, that's, that's a long movie. Yeah, it is really great that, that i'm being honest about all right uh speaking of which why don't we uh, transition right over to, to robert, robert Altman! oh we were able to do it oh man we fucking clipped we clipped like motherfuckers all oh right. that's good here comes the song <sighs> okay i like songs he's robert robert you know what? Reacting the Robert Altman was an American film director and screenwriter, wasn't he? Um, you know, one of his famous one of his famous techniques was to film group scenes combined with multiple cameras, which I thought was pretty cool. This is this is Jim's new character, which is film teacher having a stroke. How's Secret Honor, by the way? Oh my God, it's Philip Baker Hall for ninety minutes. Sometimes that's all it takes to get Jim hard. Yeah. That's true. I'm serious. Well, I mean, like, an actor can get me in the door. You know, it really can. And, you know, Phil Baker Hall, Jesus Christ. Secret honor, just, like, on firing on all cylinders. And apparently, um, the entire crew was made out of his students from the University of Michigan at the time. <laughs> which, I, which I thought was pretty badass. This Robert Altman segment will never start. No, I think that's a good way to start it. That's a good way to any. It's for you to give me that saucy look after you tell me the fact about Secret Honor. You shoot me a little glance like, and then you play cards right. Maybe I'll let you be my student if you know. <laughs> uh, I just thought that was pretty cool Robert of Altman, him to do. Robert Altman has been my favorite. Not I sh- I'm going to back up. I started to say he's been my favorite director ever since I saw McCabe Miss. But everybody will tell you otherwise because you started out saying, Woody, Woody Allen. Allen. Right, exactly. Woody Allen's my favorite director for the longest time. Um, for the longest but time. when I was uh, during my brief in college, I saw McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and that was 
not only not only was that it wasn't the first Robert Altman movie I've seen because I saw Mash, but it was the first time I heard Leonard Cohen, and, <laughs> and it's I was I was hooked. I was instantly grabbed from the just hearing the Stranger song, which is already like still one of my favorite songs ever. Mm. Like, and then that combined with that uh, opening of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where the titles are just kind of sliding from right to left. Uh, across the screen and you don't know who this guy is and you see this like small town and it's everything kind of smeary and everything's a little bit fuzzy like the focus kind is of brown and yeah, yeah it's kind of sepia almost like mm-hmm. it's, it's got this weird color to it and like the second you see him and you hear Leonard Cohen's words and every like the thing about the stranger song is every single phrase Leonard Cohen said it's like I just got a, a Joan I just started reading Joan Didion because I got a Joan Didion mm-hmm. book for Christmas and Think about Joan Didion is like every sentence is brilliant. Like every sentence says exactly what she wants to say in the most original, like, original way possible. Yeah. yeah, and like that is how I feel about the Stranger Song, where it's just he's it's a pretty familiar character he's singing about. It's just this like gambling man who you know who betrays your love that you give to him. But every mm-hmm. the way he says thing, like you notice. As he talks his dreams to sleep, you notice there's a highway that is curling just like smoke above his shoulder. Like that's just, that's just one of the lines. you know. He like any like any dealer. He was looking for a car that was so high and wild. He'd never have to deal another. He was just some Joseph looking, looking for, for a manger. manger. Like yeah, head explosion. Like that's when you so throw good. your notebook away and be like, I'm never writing lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, or that's what I go. I should pretend to do that guy, and then I write wilderness. <laughs> that's what he, that was me, like being like, I like Leonard Cohen. I'm gonna pretend I'm Leonard Cohen for a song. Oh, that's all we do. That's yeah. all musicians do. Here. Sure. So, like, after we came to Mr. Miller, I was like, Oh, this guy's the best. I gotta watch more of this guy's films. And so then after that, uh, I watched Nashville. I watched um, Long Good, The Long Goodbye. Mm-hmm. I saw Bruce McCloud on TCM. Uh, I think Bruce McCloud now is available like through Warner on Demand or whatever. So you can get like a DVR of it, but I don't, don't think there's been an actual real good release of it. It's interesting that, um, you know, I sent you that uh, quick snippet of Tarantino um, not being very supportive of Altman's work, or at least just not oh, proclaiming his genius. And, um, you know, it's funny that it took me a couple of viewings to actually absorb McCabe and Mrs. Miller myself. Like, yeah. it's like, what is going on? Hmm. This is, kind of strange and a little bit distancing. Um, I'm loving it, but at the same time, I'm not fully grasping what he's going for, or it was my first Altman experience. Other that than, was the well, first Altman well, movie you saw? No, actually, um, The Player. The Player was the first one I saw because... You, you saw know, that in theaters? Mm, Did you see rented it. Rented it on VHS. No, okay. I, I hadn't. I actually okay. just watched Crossford Park for the first time. You liked that a lot. I loved it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the, I mean, the player is not indicative of Altman. No, there's something There's something about Altman that, to me, can only... Like, there's something about when you think of Altman, and you think of Altman the director, it's something that can only exist when film grain <laughs> looked as it did in the 70s. Like, there's something... Like, the film, it has to have that sort of the early days of zoom lenses where the focus mm-hmm. wasn't very sharp. Like the player has a lot of zooming and a lot of the, like the camera work in the player is very similar to the camera work in like long goodbye or something. But because it's the nineties, the cameras were just more sophisticated and that long tracking shot, just everyone's in perfect focus and it just looks really <sighs> good. Yeah. That opening tracking shots. Awesome. It's real good. Yeah. I, and it's, and it's funny and it's playful and it's self-reflect like Robert Altman. So like mash open, like mash closes with 
the loudspeaker just announcing that they you just finished watching the movie MASH. Yeah. It gives you the synopsis of MASH, and then it says every, all the actors, this loudspeaker that exists within the movie. The beginning of Nashville, it opens like one of those KTEL like TV commercials for like mm-hmm. a country music soundtrack, which is uh, kind of a, a meta joke because the only reason Nashville got made was because the producers thought they could sell a soundtrack. Um, they didn't know that Robert Altman was going to have the actors write their own songs, and that ended up being like the chief thing critics hated about the movie was like these are terrible country songs. Mm-hmm, I don't know. I think they're all right. Yeah, but they're not like King other Carradine. Than, yeah, other than God. I'm easy. Other than I'm easy. Yeah, but I mean. We'll talk about that a little bit, but like, um, Brewster McCloud has my favorite opening of any one I have not seen yet. Okay, but I will definitely Brewster make it McCloud, a. There's the marching band in the Astrodome. Maybe they're for the. Uh, maybe they're like the band for Astros or whatever. But anyway, they're practicing in the Astrodome, and the you just see the conductor, and it's like a super long shot of the conductor and the orchestra, and then the conductor is like, "All right, two, three, four, and then the, they start playing, and as they start playing, the credits start rolling up. Oh. And then about, like, 15 seconds into it, the conductor goes, stop, stop, and then the credits disappear. And she's like, no, no, and then she's, like, correcting mm-hmm. everyone. And, and then and then there's, like, a long pause, and everyone's, like, kind of tuning up again. And they're like, two, three, four, and then the credits start right from the beginning again. <laughs> like, so, so, like, you know, Altman has always been very self-reflexive, not in, like, absurd ways. Like, it, he's not Godard. Like, he never breaks the reality of the movie once you're in the mm, movie. Yeah, that's but, true. Like, he's, but he's very playful. Yeah, very playful, indeed. And the player is playful. Um, oh, you just had a gym moment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, you're rubbing off on me. This is why we shouldn't be in the same room. No! So, but the player was the first movie you saw, but McCain and Mrs. Miller was the second Robert Altman movie you saw? Yeah, because you were like, oh my god, you've never seen it! Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'll see it. And it took me a while to really get into it, and... Even trying to watch it with my mom, my mom was like, nothing's really happening, and yeah. I don't understand what they're saying. And, you know, like some criticisms that I think can be valid to some people who just don't get into the rhythm and flow of, oh, of yeah. that movie. And Absolutely. And I... Altman, there's, there isn't really an, an Altman movie that has a super strong plot. Yeah. And that's something you have to adjust to, and yeah. you have to say, like, okay, that's not his focus. His focus is on character and people. He loves people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a people person. Yeah. Totally. And he's very fascinated by human behavior and, you know, different classes clashing. Yeah, and to me, like, he is sort of the film equivalent of, like, someone like Kurt Vonnegut. Where, like, this humanist, like, very invested in people being good to each other, but also very cynical yes. and sarcastic and, and a very, very biting humor. Happy to recognize the flaws of yeah. human nature. Yeah. And that's something I, I mean, I just, just like that he tackles that so mm-hmm. effortlessly in some instances. And, you know, so um, what, can you tell me about the, no, I'm sorry, go on. I oh, no, I mean, like, it's funny because, you know, even after really liking McCabe and Mrs. Miller, like it really wasn't until maybe like a few months later where I sat down and within a couple of weeks watched Long Goodbye and Three Women Back to Back. And I said, oh, my God, Robert Altman is a genius. Like, both of those were, like, masterpieces in my mind and amongst my favorite movies ever. Yeah. And just because of weird choices that I could not – I never saw in any other movie before. And that's kind of just the thrill that you hope for when you're watching movies He's and older so movies. so lucky to have – <laughs> to have Elliot Gould in his corner. Yeah. Like, I like there's a lot of movies he's made, especially like particularly in the eighties. Like you watch OC and Stiggs. OC and Stiggs kind of has the middle finger s- sort of cheeky satirical 
um, like tone that something like MASH or California Split has. Mm-hmm. But those actors are not George Seagal and and uh, Elliot Gould. And like, he, very few are right. But like, I mean, he's just so good with actors that Elliot Gould is. The first, there was a Conan O'Brien bit where it was called Frankenstein Wastes uh, a Minute of Your Time, and it was just, Frankenstein would come onto the set, and then he'd go to the camera, and he'd go, come on, follow, and he'd, like, he'd make the cameraman follow him into some part, backstage corner, and then he'd just be, like, pointing at a light switch. <laughs> and would be like, oh, that's not interesting at all. <laughs> and, and, like, it was like, well, you just waste our time. And, like, I think, like, the, I mean, it isn't, actually, because it actually sets up the character and the tone of the movie, and the pace of the movie beautifully, but like the first fifteen minutes of the long goodbye are just him buying cat food. I know, and it's amazing. It's so funny. And yeah. Just like oh man, that first tracking shot where the camera just like goes into him lying in bed with his shoes still on, and mm-hmm. you see all these like scuff marks all over the wall, and it's just like, where is that? Like, what is that? Was he like kicking the wall or something? Right. And the first thing he does when he wakes up is he strikes a match on the wall and makes mm-hmm. another one. You're like. Oh, I, everything I need to know about the characters right there. And throughout the whole movie, he's just striking matches wherever the fuck he wants. I don't know if he started this on MASH or what particular movie. I'm sure you're more aware being a fan, but what is his method of recording dialogue and audio? Because, like, uh, he, in Long Goodbye, it seems like it's overdubbed with Elliot Gould, you know, talking and walking yeah. and saying these mumbly things. And it's just like the audio is so different than what I'm used to and what my ears are used to hearing in a movie. And I know he must have had an alternative method. Well, yeah, of- it was on MASH. I mean, he – he. it wasn't until Nashville that he really – like obviously as recording equipment just got better and better, um, you know, he would adapt and use different equipment and stuff. Sure. But his technique that he used like all the way through Gosford Park, he sort of solidified Nashville, which is that everyone had body mics. Oh. And so he – so it would just be like really complicated like eight-track sound mixing, which at the time was really rare. Um, and he could fade in and out of different people's conversations and, hmm. and mash. I think it was similar. I don't think everyone had body mics, but everyone was mic'd. So, so like, obviously, you know, Elliot Gould is going to be, you're going to be able to hear him. You're going to be able to hear Donald Sutherland, um, some of the main people and anyone who has important dialogue, but the, the way the microphones were set up, you could also hear other people. Right. And I mean, his, his, his sort of directing philosophy was established in mash, which is, Use long cameras that can zoom in on any given person, but no any no given person knows when they're being zoomed in on. So, like, the camera <laughs> is, like, 50 feet away looking at this big crowd of people, and he could just be doing a close-up of some guy doing nothing at all, where, like, Elliot Gould sl- slowly gets pushed out of frame because the camera's zooming in on this guy who's just doing this. And this guy, he has to act the entire time. He can't be like, well, now it's my close-up, so I get to back bigger. He's not made aware of that yeah. in the moment. So, like, that's how... And that's how he got that improvisational style, and that's how he had that very naturalistic performances. And he wouldn't use boom mics then at all, because uh, yeah, I think he set up mics in the like in. I mean, I don't exactly know the 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 technique, but but yeah, you couldn't use a boom mic because the camera was so far away. Mm -hmm. He used lots of long shots throughout his career. Oh, that's what I mean. Like it's just interesting to hear how he recorded audio. Yeah, and it's it's so naturalistic, but it's not something like John Cassavetes or whatever, where it's handheld, like. He definitely has a style. Yes. And it's not it, – it, it's a very subtle style though. It's not De Palma obviously. It's not Hitchcock. It's not Spielberg. It's um, not all about um, sort of hammering you with emotion and like you feel this and you're building mm-hmm. it up and here's the payoff. Like his style is kind of just kind of subtle and elegant where he'll just have these long shots and these 
very fluid camera movements. And very cameras, fluid. Yeah. Cameras are always moving. They're always zooming in or slowly zooming out. Yeah, always- especially in the long goodbye. I feel like the camera's always moving. Like yeah. even in a like an interrogation room, mm-hmm. constant zooms and things like that. And just like he's he has an energy without it being like showy or flashy yeah. or over the top. Yeah, I mean, and it's something you definitely have to be into to to get into his movies because if you <laughs> if you're waiting, like California Split is just observing these two junkies. Yeah, pretty like, much. California, California Split is without the best judging movie them about, at all about gambling. I wouldn't say it's not judging at all. I think it's clear that these, these yeah, maybe by the end for sure. But I, eh, I I feel like that's one of his strengths too is that he's not a oh, judgmental yeah. I, I, I'm not gonna, against oh, yeah. his characters. I, I'll go back. I, I I'll go back on that. He, I agree with you. He's not judging them, but he's certainly not. He's not amoral. Right. Right. Okay. I mean, there are parts of his movie like. <laughs> This is one of the things about uh, mostly MASH and California Split is the problem I have, which is like, uh, it's just like, because it's 1970 or because it's 1972, it's, there's just gross parts of the movie, like in MASH, like there's just sort of rampant sexism, like all throughout, where they're just like, yeah. like get, get a nurse whose, whose tits won't get in the way when she's handing her equipment, and like, and just the way they just like expose uh, hot lips, you yeah. know, in front mm-hmm, of everyone, mm-hmm. there's just like weird sexist vibes to it. I think there's a little bit of that in California Split, too. California right? Split, there's that horrible scene where it's like the trans woman oh, yeah. shows up, and they're just like, that's hum- really uncomfortable. Squad and they're just humiliating right. her, and yeah. then everyone just walks away from that laughing hysterically. There's not a single, like, the, mo- the movie doesn't take a, take a moment to register how traumatizing and horrible it is. Like, it sets it up, like, this, this trans woman finally had the strength to go out dressed as a woman and to go on a date with these two other women and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's just like, ah, isn't that hilarious? They thought they were a person. Fuck them. Yeah. And then, like, there's a grossness. And I think he got better, especially in his depictions of women. Like, three women in Nashville, there's really, really mm-hmm. strong female characters. In Shortcuts, there's really strong female characters. Um, the player, the, char- the player is so satirical, there's not really any strong characters. But, like, um, like he definitely got better. It, it makes it makes it it makes it easier to watch MASH knowing that that got better and not worse. Right. Uh, whereas, like, some some questionable parts of, like, early Tarantino movies, you watch later Tarantino movies, and you're like, yeah, he never really did fix that. He's just, <laughs> he just kind of, like, likes to push up against that race button, um, you know, whether or not it's called for. And he never did fix that. Like, <laughs> that's sort of what he does. And it's, eh, I don't know. But, like, uh, or, like, Wes Anderson with his sort of exotic- exoticism of, like, And his hatred of animals. Brown people, oh, I love that. I, I I love animals getting hurt in movies. Oh, <laughs> because it's fake. No animals were harmed, and everyone knows. I this, know, and they still get upset. That's why I love it. But anyway, so uh, what was I saying? Um, mm, we're I, sort I, of I, all over the map, but yeah. that's okay. So Allman, uh, he started shooting industrials in Kansas. Um, that's sort of where he started in the film business. Same uh, same way Herc Harvey, director of Carnival of Souls, started. Uh, oh, wow! Industrials in Kansas. I think Herc Harvey, because uh, uh, Robert Altman was Kansas City and Herc Harvey was Lawrence. Mm-hmm. So they weren't, like, working in the same company or anything. But um, Harvey didn't make quite as many movies. No, no. Uh, yeah, Robert Altman, he averaged a movie a year for his entire life, despite the fact that he only had one hit. He managed to make about a movie a year. Was the player his only hit? No, the player wasn't a hit. Oh, MASH. MASH. Yeah. 
Mash was a, or I would say like a huge hit. The player must have been a critical. I think it was. No, he had critical hits. Yeah, you know, he had critical hits. He played a lot of D and D. No, he had like he had like he was a critical darling. Right. That's like Pauline Kale saved his career. Like Pauline Kale saw an early mm-hmm. version of Nashville and was like, "This is changing everything." Yeah, Nothing will ever be the same in film, which didn't end up being the case, but it's still a great movie. And Ebert agreed with that too. Yeah, but like, this well, Ebert adored Pauline Kale, um, so like. <laughs> Pauline Kale stumped for him. There was a lot of people who were in his corner, and he made movies cheaply, and actors wanted to work with him, um, so they were willing to work for scale. So, similar to the way Woody Allen was able to make mm, some I'm seeing some correlations here. Yeah. So, uh, but he started out like making industrial films, and he moved to directing television. He directed probably the only television I would say, I mean, I haven't watched a lot of his television work, but he did direct for Combat, which I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Combat is basically just this anthology show where it's different war stories, and mm. it was shot kind of documentary style, and it's like this early 60s show, and it's actually kind of interesting. Um, okay. I mean, it's early 60s television. It's not anything groundbreaking, but there is a weird grittiness and a realness to it, and they deliberately tried to make it simulate like uh, a documentary footage. It's not a mockumentary. like It's characters, and they're not acknowledging the camera. Mm-hmm. But just- I'm really curious about Tanner 88. Oh, Tanner 88 is something he did for HBO. That's basically a miniseries. Oh, okay. Tanner 88 is great, but I, I'm still sort of giving the, uh, yeah. the history of, of Altman for people who may be uninitiated. Comet would be the only thing that I would say like, oh yeah, that translates into his film career. He did uh, That Cold Day in the Park, which is his first feature film. I'm curious about that one. Because, I didn't see it. Okay. I've never seen it. It, it definitely had uh, you know people that I read a couple of essays on compared it a little bit, although not as surreal as Three Women, still has the psychological undercurrent going uh-huh. on in that. So I'm like, oh, I might, might want to watch that at some point. Sure. So that was his first feature film. He's a giant pain in the ass to work with. Um, basically, through most of the 60s, he was a really mean drunk. Um, oh. And he was really vicious when he'd get drunk. And he could just like cut into you. And he was just an asshole to people. He didn't care who he pissed off. He would just yell at studio heads. He would... I mean, that's part of yeah. That's part of what makes Altman this kind of I heard like, that, filmmaker folk mm-hmm. hero is right. that like is that he would hang up like Playboy spreads in the editing bay for Mash, <laughs> and then Fox would send out a memo saying, uh, "Please, no centerfolds to be set up an official." And then he put up more. And no, he put up more, and then he he read the memo into the movie. So if you watch Mash, yeah. there's this loudspeaker that's like, uh, "The Colonel would like to say, you know, not to be any." Uh, uh, magazine spreads to be put up right. in lockers. Like, like he's he just gave middle fingers to the establishment all the time in his real life and in his film. Yeah, and that's definitely. sort of what makes him yeah this like folk hero sort of person that it's easy to root for. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a mean drunk. He was hard to work with. Uh, sometime in the late sixties, he switched to smoking pot and he just mellowed out. And he was still he was still a total asshole to people he worked with because he very fiercely independent. When he would shoot television, apparently, he would, like, just try to shoot it as unlike rest of television as possible. Like, he would just try to switch everything up. But, I again, I would like to see more. I think he directed, like, some Bonanza. I think he, he was all over the place. Oh, wow. I'd like to see more of his work to see if it's possible in that sort of setting. In 60s television, it's possible to see. Because, I mean, like, I've seen some television that Spielberg shot, and it's you can't really tell. yeah. It's, if you watch an Amazing Stories episode, eh. well, no, that's well, that's different, right? That's he was the executive. I'm talking about within the bounds of you have a week to shoot this hour long mm-hmm, episode mm-hmm. and like got the script Twilight five days Zone ago. or something, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so then Mash 
was a movie that he was really fighting for to get on because he really thought he could make it work. And the entire time, Fox was freaking out. Uh, well, they, I mean, they didn't, they didn't think it was going to be good. They kept sending all these notes like, this looks like crap. Why, why does it sound like this? Why is it shot like this? Mm-hmm. Why are all these men so dirty? And then and Altman's like, and Altman, who was a, he was a gunner in the Air Force. Or no, he flew bombers in World War II. Hmm. He was in the Air Force in World War II. Um, at any rate, he was like, it's war. Men get dirty in war. Yep. So then uh, Fox, so then the same executives went over to Patton, which was also filming at Fox. And they're like, why are all these men's uniforms so clean? This is war. Men get dirty in war. <laughs> so like, yeah, but like they, they had all their marbles in Patton and Tora, 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 which is the mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor movie that Fox was making at the time. So uh, they were like, eh, mash, whatever. And also, they were uh, they were a little afraid that Mash would be um, that Mash would be overshadowed by Catch Twenty Two because that was Mike yep. Nichols' movie, and Mike Nichols was everyone's darling because he did Who's Afraid Graduate. of Wolf and The Graduate. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like, "Oh, Catch Twenty Two! This is this is going to be it. We got to get this out before Catch Twenty Two. And but, then the ver- reverse happened. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mash Mash was way fresher. It's funnier. It's crazier. It's weirder. It's more unusual. It's it's just so good." And yeah. it was a huge hit. It was like the counter, like, like it, it was, I mean, it's the comedy mm-hmm. that sort of defined counterculturalism. Yeah. And- yeah. Like it, it was the countercultural comedy of like the sixties, seventies, like right. um, the, as far as just like the general public and what they went to, I mean, it, then it started a show that uh, I've still not watched cause I have no faith in that show being able to, like, I'm sure that show is good on its own. But there's no way it's like the movie. No, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. I've never watched it. I mean, I know people were huge fans yeah, of it. Yeah, I should just... watch it just because I love MASH so much. So after that, uh, he, they said, all right, all right, you were right. We were wrong. You have the keys to the castle. What do you want to do? And he goes, I'm going to make a movie about a boy trying to learn to fly in the Astrodome. So <laughs> Brewster McCloud, and it was a huge fucking bomb because it's the weirdest thing ever. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not nearly as good as MASH, but it's also just, I don't know how you sell that. So he got that made. And then he was sort of bouncing around for a while, but Warner Brothers wanted to be in the Robert Altman business because so Warner Brothers was like, "All right, McCabe, and Mrs. Miller," and then that was a big like it got nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, but Warren Beatty hated it because the sound was terrible. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, Warren Beatty and him clash a lot because Warren Beatty is the biggest like star who's like, "I'm a star, and I'm I'll tell you what the movie's supposed to be made." Yeah, he's got a bit of an ego. Yeah, yeah. Warren Beatty has a big ego. He thinks the song. He he's so vain that he thinks this song is about him. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then, but then, yeah, like his entire career was basically his only commercial success, like real commercial success, was Mash. Wow. Yeah. That's and surprising just, to me. He just kept spitting them out. Like he just, and all through the seventies, mm-hmm. brilliant movie after brilliant movie. I mean, I didn't see images. Yeah, that one was interesting. I I. F- I don't know. I think coming off of just ha- you know rewatching Three Women for the second time, it just seemed like a step down. Uh, uh, it, it seemed less clear. It, I mean, it's definitely got the you know the psychological vibe again, uh-huh. which is why I was really fascinated about you know just like a you know a, a housewife sort of having a mental breakdown. It's again very similar to um, Polanski. <laughs> yeah, repulsion. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit like that. And just, you know, you're not sure if it's real or not, the, you know, hallucinatory nature of it. And it's, again, almost like my reaction to Polanski's The Tenant, where um, I appreciated it more than I enjoyed it. Uh-huh. And it's something I'll probably rewatch again in the future, just now that I know what I'm in for kind yeah. of a thing. But 
I think it's interesting to mention like how much investment the studio has had into something like Popeye and yeah. like Robert Altman's I vision of the- might have been a minor hit. I thought it was a bomb. Was it a bomb? I thought it was. I thought like you know a lot of people they just put so much into that movie and thinking like oh, okay yeah. it's, it's going to be great. And I don't know a lot about the making of Popeye. I thought I the, what I, what my impression was was and I could be completely wrong is that Popeye was one of those movies that. It had a lot riding on it, mm-hmm. so or like it had a lot of high expectations, huge, and so it was reported as being a bomb when actually it made its money back and it didn't actually lose That's any money. Could be true. Like the same thing happened with the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong movie, where it was so hyped that when it didn't, it wasn't like this earth shattering movie. Mm-hmm. People assumed that it was a box office failure, and that was sort of the the lore of that movie was like, oh yeah, he put all his chips on that movie and it bombed, but movie, but the movie actually made a lot of money and it, yeah. and it made its money back. Well, Gene Shalit hated it, so that's a big deal. <laughs> Gene Shalit hated Popeye? Or yeah, 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 no, he hated Popeye and it was like, I don't understand Harry Nilsson, his songs are terrible. I'm like, what are you, nuts? You watched, what did you, did, to prepare for this, did you look up what, what Gene Shalit thought of all the Robert <laughs> Well, I, I, it might have been in the Altman documentary. You know what? I thought that Nashville was pretty good, but uh, let's see what Gene Shalit had to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. There was that epics documentary yeah. about Altman, which I didn't watch because I hate epics. Mm, or I hate their documentaries. I will say this about that Altman documentary, which is pretty subpar, pretty mediocre stuff. It actually made me cry at the end because... Because he loves Brief Encounter. Yeah. Like... Because that is the – if I were to choose, like, my number one movie that I've watched this year, it's that one for sure. Yeah. It is, like, the before sunrise I would, I, of its I time. I saw that for the first time, too, at, on your on the strength of your recommendation. Yeah. I now – if you uh, look over that shelf, I now own it on Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> I love Brief, Brief Encounter. Oh, my so God. Um, Brief Encounter is – yeah, like, I can see that being an important Robert Altman movie. It's, it's very humanist. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like a Robert Altman movie. It but just knowing, like, you know – when he was damn near dying of yeah. cancer, like he goes to see this movie in a movie theater and it's just brought to tears. Like they bring that up at towards the end of the documentary. I was just like, Oh, oh like towards br- the end of his life. He watched brief encounter. Yeah. He just went into a movie theater, you know, being the really, really the sick. Filmmaker. I always associate with Robert Altman is genre noir. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen a lot of, I've only seen rules of the game. I need to see more. So rules of the game, obviously, yeah, there's Gosford a lot Park. of stuff that's that, like very influential in Gosford Park, and for just sure. In general, the sort of class warfare that's constantly mm-hmm. going on in Altman's films, and definitely. Um, but also, Grand Illusion, uh, which if yeah, you, if I need you to see that seen, one. I'm gonna um, then you're getting it from. Oh boy, I'm gonna lend it to you. You're gonna go home with that. Grand Illusion is one of my favorite movies ever. Mm-hmm. It's a great humanist war movie about again class issues inside of a World War One POW camp. Yeah, and. Oh, it's so good, and it's. But again, uh, Renoir's camera is always moving, and he's always linking people through uh, shots. And uh, there's like uh, Budo save save from drowning. I think is the movie. Like hmm. that movie, I remember watching. That's a that's on Criterion. That's a Renoir movie. I remember seeing and like being like, holy shit! Like this is so. Awesome Why haven't because, we done Renoir yet? What's wrong with us? Yeah, we got to get there. Uh, but uh, that movie has a lot of like long shots and mm-hmm. like just cameras gliding past windows the way they do in the player or in beyond therapy. There's a lot right. of cameras gliding past windows and stuff. Um, and I always associate, and also Renoir is sort of, uh, known for encouraging improvisation and getting like more naturalistic performances. And, um, 
even even in uh, Grand Illusion, I feel like there's some scenes, and I could be completely misremembering this, where there's like overlapping dialogue and stuff mm-hmm. as people are sitting at the dinner table and stuff like that. Is Altman one of those directors who encourages improvisation? And absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. I figured that. That's why. That's part of the reason that the body might. You watch his movies, and just the way he'll be at a party, cutting from conversation to conversation, it's like you know that he encouraged them to improvise. Right. Oh man, I. It's oh, it is so frustrating that like. I don't. I mean, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like Elliot Gould, outside of Robert Altman movies, he like I feel like Elliot Gould is the improvisational genius of all time as far as actors go. And I feel like outside of like California Split and Long Goodbye and Mesh, I haven't seen him do any of that. Maybe we should do an actors club on Elliot Gould. Oh my god, we should. I'd love to watch more Elliot Gould because you should see the silent the, the silent partner is a great thriller with Elliot this, Gould. Uh, when is that from? I think 1978. I don't okay, even know who cool. directed so it's it, like, but it's Pete Gould. Yes, yes, it's <laughs> definitely Pete Gould. And another one of my dad's favorite movies that, like, you know, it's just a simple sort of thriller, of, yeah. you know, and about Santa Claus robbing a, a jewelry store, and it's actually really great. Um, Elliot Gould and Peter Segal in California Split. George Segal. George Segal. That's yeah. right. Peter Segal is from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I yeah. think. <laughs> and Peter Cetera's from Chicago. Okay. Okay. Now we're all caught up. Good. Uh, and George Seagal in California Split are my absolute favorite, like, comedy duo in film history. They are mm. so funny. Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Uh, no, I, I like them more than, <laughs> like than Lemmon and Matthau. I don't think they got to do any more movies together. But yeah, Gould talking a mile a minute and everything, mm-hmm. every like, every piece of input that gets put at him – he just like repeats it and then he just turns it out and like twists it and it turns into a joke. He's like this improvisational genius. And like that whole scene in like I wouldn't I don't I'm not saying that the whole scene in the interrogation room in Long Goodbye is improvised, but if it was Yeah, it's gotta be <laughs> like it's it's one of those scenes like where that, you know, where um uh, Jonathan Winters is just given a prop and then he just does a hundred <laughs> things with it. Like Elliot Gould is like, all right, you have black already your fingerprints go. And <laughs> yeah. he just goes and goes. And it's so good. Oh, I know. I, I adore, uh, I, I adore, uh, Donald Sutherland in mash, but Elliot Gould is the Robert Altman MVP for me. I would, I would concur to be, uh, the, the Robert Altman mm-hmm. guy. That's it's Elliot Gould for me. Yeah. I can watch him go buy cat food for two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say I, I had a revelation watching McCabe and Mrs. Miller uh, again uh, like, like last week, which is that I think it's one of the reasons I respond so strongly to Robert Altman movies and that movie in particular is because he kind of ennobles fuck-ups. Like, his movies are about these total fuck-ups, but there's something there's something noble and there's there's yeah. some sort of integrity that they have. And it's like, as someone who sort of like identifies as just a total fuck up, oh. like, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not trying to be like too down on myself or I'm not, I'm not trying to be too self deprecating or whatever. I'm just like, I just look at my life and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel like a fuck up. I think it's part of the human experience. Yeah, sure. But like, uh, like I, I identify so strongly with McCabe in that movie. Cause he's just, Oh, he's just making all these dumb fucking decisions. <laughs> And, Bad business but moves. But he, and he's not like – it's not like he's making – it's not like he is – well, he lives by a code, you know? It's not – he's not John Wayne, you know? Mm-hmm. He's, it's not like, well – like he's he's full of contradictions. He contradicts himself. I just thought he was stubborn too. Yeah, he's stubborn. Yeah, he's just like this stubborn fuck up. But, but there's something like – but somehow Altman is able to make that like something that's worth celebrating. 
And I don't know what it is exactly, because he's not nice in Cave Mrs. Miller. He's not... I don't think he puts people on a pedestal, and that's what I love honest. about him. Like, I'm, I'm just talking about the character of McCabe. Like, he's yeah, not a nice yeah. person. He's not honest. He doesn't seem... Pr- he's self-centered. He doesn't seem particularly interested in other people. But I guess I guess you just get enough access to his inner sadness mm-hmm. that you, like... That all of that has an explanation. And it's... I mean, a lot of Altman's movies are sort of centered around, quote-unquote, unlikable characters. But you just sort of see where they're coming from. And through Altman's empathy, you relate to them. And it's not, uh, it's not like something, it's not like a Bombback movie where you're just sort of, it's not where it's off-putting. Right. It's never off-putting. There's so many characters in Nashville who are just total cocks. Like uh, the, I can't remember his name, but he's the, he's the old country singer who's, who is like, uh, who starts off the movie singing, <laughs> singing that, that uh, conservative anthem about the bicentennial, where it's oh, like, yeah, we must yeah. be doing something right to last 200 years. Like, <laughs> I forget the name of the actor or the character, but, like, that guy is a total cock. Right. But he's so great. I love him. I love him in that movie. Yeah, it's you interesting. You anyone in that movie other than the BBC reporter and and possibly Michael Murphy, um, who's the campaign manager guy. Right, right. It's just really bizarre to me, like, even even with something like Three Women, how I start out... Oh, that's Shelley Duvall. She's kind of stuck up, and then all of a sudden I'm empathizing with her. You know, and I think he does that sort of reversal. You know, like just to sort of invert and subvert your expectations yeah. with well, certain characters like that. I I wrote a uh, for a creative writing class uh, in high school to just to give you the kind of idea of the kind of person I was in high school. Is this high school? Oh, it might have been college. The timeline might be off. I think it was high school. I took high, I took creative writing in high school. I wrote a piece of creative writing that was Shelley Duvall on the that was like from the perspective of Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining, and because I find that story fascinating because yeah. Shelley Duvall is not an actress by trade. Shelley Duvall tried to sell Robert Altman a painting, and he found her so charming and interesting. And she has a crazy face, and she has this weird, like super skinny body. Like yeah. her her body looks like, like unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looks unhealthy. But I I mean. I don't know, and she may have had an eating disorder, or maybe she just had a body that was like that, and that's, you know, whatever. But, like, but like it's just she's an odd-looking person, and she's got those big teeth, mm-hmm. and, and you know, something he liked about her, so he put her in Brewster McCloud, and then he she was in, like, most of his movies after that. She was in Thieves Like Us, which I didn't rewatch for this, and I don't have a strong memory of, so. Did you watch Thieves Like Us? Mm-mm, no. Okay, so I can't really speak to that. I just watched like, Spies Like Us. Okay, sure, yeah. The other great <laughs> Robert Altman classic. Right. Um, I, I'm surprised that uh, that uh, John Landis didn't get Robert Altman to do a cameo in some movie. John Landis loved director cameos. And, yeah. Um, but uh, like, so Shelley Duvall was in these movies where she's like, where she's encouraged to improvise and just like start do your own thing, and you know you don't have to be a trained actor. Or whatever. And then she goes to a Stanley Cooper mm-hmm. movie where it's like a fucking bulldozer running over traumatizing her head times, yeah. getting traumatized. Like to me, that is such a fascinating story. I don't know what other movies she did in between the Altman films and the shining, but there's nothing that could have prepared her for the shining. No, but I mean, at the same maybe time, that's what Kubrick wanted. Maybe Kubrick knew this and was like, oh, I, I take want- advantage of that. <laughs> yeah. <like> Kubrick. <laughs> he sounds a little bit like sling players. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take advantage of that. Yeah. Kubrick's like, I'm going to eat her brains with some French, French fried, fried potatoes. potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because like, uh, especially after watching McCabe, Long Goodbye, Three Women, pretty much all back-to-back. Masterpieces. All of them. All three of them, yeah. And um, 
I just get got this impression they all felt like dreams. <laughs> like they all had this quality of like there's something about seamless and organic and just there's not, yeah, subconscious. About the they're they're languid, yeah, but also aesthetically because of the extensive use of the zoom lens and stuff, they're soft focus. Yeah. They're not super sharp focus. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the things about watching all Robert Altman movies in, on Blu-ray is that you're not going to, it's not like, like I got, I got uh, a couple criterion Blu-rays for Christmas this year and I got, and I got thief <gasps> and I got Nashville mm-hmm. and like Michael Mann. So like his movies, the focus is so important. He yeah. shoots, shoots so sharp looking movies. You get you watch Thief on the Criterion Blu-ray. It's like jaw dropping. It's oh, so good. good looking. And then like you watch Nashville, and you're like, oh yeah. I mean, there's only so much better. <laughs> like there's only so much. I felt that way watching movie. Three Women because I was, I was going to be blown away by like, oh, this is going to be crystal clear. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's like it's yeah. just not the way he shot those movies. Right. Exactly. And, but like that becomes an important part of it. Like that's why you watch The Player, and the focus is so mm-hmm. much better. And you're like. Yeah, there's something missing. <laughs> like it's not quite. It doesn't quite feel the same. And as much as I've grown to love Mulholland Drive more and more over the years, I want to just throw this movie at people like and be like, women. "Watch Three Women." Three Women's better than Mulholland Drive. Yes, I'll say. it is. I'll say right now. I will. I will say that too. Me, that's fine. But like, Three Women has Mulholland Drive has a dream sequence where it's like crazy grandparent people running under this <laughs> door or whatever. Three Women has a dream sequence that's entirely audio. It's like this audio collage. Yeah. It's, it's the gorgeous thing. And weird. Oh, gorgeous man. and, and weird. Like, that's the other thing. Like, again, Altman, not known for like someone who is crafting these beautiful images. You know, he's not Terrence Malick. Like, Terrence Malick, he gets very naturalistic performances, mm-hmm. but he also crafts these like utterly gorgeous, like, you know, Badlands, another movie that looks amazing in Blu-ray. Like, yeah, I need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Get that. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like Days of Heaven. Like, those movies are just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they also, they also kind of languid and naturalistic, but like, they're, but they're so controlled, like, the images are so controlled and so perfect and so pristine that it doesn't have that kind of hazy feel that the Altman movies have. So like, you can, but I feel like you'd be doing Altman a disservice by saying he can't craft gorgeous visuals or like he doesn't have a cinematic brain mm-hmm. it's not as if like he's just filming plays like he what he does with the camera is very specific and he can create some beautiful images especially McCabe Mrs. Miller probably has the most of the obvious ones just because it's a western so you have just great images of man versus nature and like that sun that magic hour shot of them putting up the cross on the church and Stuff like that, and like, or the very end when the credits roll, where it's the where Mrs. Miller is high on opium and she's just staring at this little. Oh bead. yeah, and and you just get this extreme close up of the bead and all these lights refracting from it. It's just it's just this wonderful, beautiful, surreal image, and like he can do that, it, right? It's not it's not his you know it's not his modus operandi, but but he's also like very capable of making super striking visual choices. Mm-hmm. Like he can do it all. Like McCabe, like. You just think of it as movies just feel like there there's a haze of pot smoke over them. They're just like yeah, they're just sort of like free associating and languid, and the camera's just kind of slowly zooming and moving, mm-hmm. and and like people will be talking, and then the camera will zoom past them into something else. Like it's just it's just weird kind of feeling to it. But then, like the last twenty minutes of Kate Mrs. Miller is like one of the greatest gunfights yeah, I've I ever know. seen. I know. <laughs> It like, just feels like, think, oh my god, so you raw. Think, you think Altman, you don't think like, oh yeah, he can craft an action sequence. He can craft a really tense. But because he spent this entire movie like just establishing the geography of this town, right? Like when it pay, it pays off as such a great setting for this gunfight where he's like, where 
where uh, McCabe again because he's this fuck up. He's mm-hmm. not like this badass gunfighter. He's hiding and he's hiding in the snow and he like gets shot and he's like he fakes his he, like he fakes dead so he can finally like get the last right. laugh and it's this and he's just sort of bleeding out in the snow and and it's like tense and it's exciting and it's sad and it's yeah. But and it cuts to Mrs. Miller's face. Just like, oh, it's just heartbreaking. That yeah. whole, that, that yeah, it's and it's crazy. Like when I was watching, it was like the two adjectives that came to mind. This is very controlled, but yet very raw. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I'm amazed that he finds that perfect marriage. He he just walked between the, those he two walked things on the edge of a razor his entire yeah. career. Yeah, like, and that's what like just on the career side, just the way he treated studios and the way like. There's not a single studio that didn't make an Altman movie because he didn't stay at any of them too long. Like mm-hmm. after McCabe, Mrs. Miller, Warner Brothers, like kind of like, all right, we're done with you. Like he made a movie for New World Pictures, which I think was Roger Corman's studio. He made Columbia. I think he. Made, oh wow. Uh, I forget what uh, was it Miramax that did Gosford Park? Maybe like he was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he made a. I think he probably made. I don't. I'm not. I'm not one of those people who can memorize what studios made what movies. But like, yeah, I'm not either. But like, he walks on the razor's, razor's edge with his career, just bouncing all over the place, not making any money for anyone, but making the movies he wants to make. Which is like, God fucking bless you. Like, right. That's what. God, I wish everyone could make that. Like, not. It's not enough that he made great movies. He didn't make this. He didn't make the asshole studios mm-hmm. any money. <laughs> to me, that's like beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and he imagine, manages to make. Like a moment, especially coming from a guy like Elliot Gould, and you go back to the very beginning and see how much investment he has in it, in his cat, and at the very end of the movie, he's like, "And I lost my fucking cat, bang!" You know, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. And plus, like, people were very critical of that ending because, like, "Oh, that's not what Marla would do in the books," and but that's yeah, I, that's it, Altman's I, touch. I I I should say like one good uh, one thing that helps you going into the long goodbye is to not have any preconceived notions about. Yeah. Because it's the it's the same Marlowe character that Humphrey Bogart played mm-hmm. in The Big Sleep and a couple other movies. Or? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, he played the same character. It's a Raymond Chandler character, right, right now. Raymond Chandler, Raymond Carver, or is it? I think uh, it's Chandler. I think it's Chandler. Raymond Chandler. No, Raymond, Raymond Carver Car- is Raymond Carver shortcuts. shortcuts. Yes, Raymond Chandler is um, uh, Marlowe. Marlowe. So he plays this character, and it's like this '70s kind of noir update which is you know we talked about during the inherent vice Mm -hmm. and i me not being a huge huge hugely knowledgeable about noir and certainly not about reading i'm certainly i've never read any noir novels or short stories though i do i do have uh over there the postman always rings twice Uh, i also got that for christmas so oh wow i'm gonna be reading that soon um but i've only seen the jack nicholson movie i've only i've only seen the uh um Antonioni? And I think that was because David Mamet wrote it, if I recall. But yeah. Not Antonioni. Maybe Antonioni. There's an Italian, or like late 40s Italian movie called uh, L'Obsession, which is uh, sort of hmm. an Italian neorealist take on The Postman Always Rings Twice. Okay. It's pretty good. Interesting. Um, but, so, what, we've mostly been talking about the 70s. Yes. Because that was, that was Robert Altman's time to shine. Mm-hmm. And because Three Women's a Masterpiece. Have you? Well, yeah, Three Women's a Masterpiece. That's the other thing. Like, you think Masterpiece, you think these movies that are, like, what are the masterpieces of the 70s? You think The Godfather. You think Jaws, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, compared to those kinds of movies, like, compared to Badlands, compared to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, compared to, um, 
I don't know. Uh, taxi driver. Taxi driver. Yes, great example. Like his Robert Altman's movies are so unassuming. Like they're yeah. not movies that you just like. You walk out of it and you're just like, oh yeah, that changed everything. That was that's a masterpiece. But they are. They're they're perfect. Mm-hmm. And they're so good and they're so daring and they're so different. And yeah, and just like the end of Long Goodbye, he's dancing in the middle of a road to Hooray for Hollywood. Yeah, and it's just like. It's such a weird choice, uh-huh. and but it's it's it works in that world that he you, established. You, I will say, if you don't like the aesthetic of Altman, you're, it's going to be hard for you to get into. The oh, movies. for sure. There's, they they are very slow paced, mm-hmm. not in the way like Tarkovsky is slow paced, where you're waiting for something to happen. But it's more like the plots. Uh, there's a part you know most movies you watch, especially genre movies, which Altman actually did a lot of. The first twenty minutes, you're you get to know the environment, the characters, and what kind of movie it's going to be, what mm-hmm. kind of story it's going to tell. In an Altman movie, that doesn't really happen. Right. The first all in an Altman movie, all of those things are constantly uh, revealing themselves. Um, if it can often feel like it's all set up. Like I read the I read the plot synopsis for California Split before I saw it, and it was like two. It's like two gambling addicts like find each other and then go on a trip to Reno. And, it was, and, like, <laughs> the trip to Reno doesn't happen until the last 20 minutes of this two-hour movie. Yep. <laughs> like, it's just all about character establishment and allowing us to oh, spend California, a lot of time. California Split, other than the aforementioned scene with the trans woman, like, that movie is so good. It is, yeah. it is the best depiction of addiction. I, I think because it's not drug addiction, it is sort of freed from a lot of cliches that mm-hmm. you get in movies about addiction, which is someone does something... Like, someone does something horrible when they're under the influence or, um, you know, or, you know, or they, uh, or, yeah, or, or, like, they, they reach, like, a, a phys- like, it, the, the lows that they reach are kind of, like, physical lows. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, heroin addiction, you see that in something like train spotting, but I think yeah. the, just the, the idea of seeing self-destruction portrayed with money, I don't know, it's like... And unfortunately, like the updating of the gambler does a completely disservice by casting someone like Mark Wahlberg, and you get both both sides of him, where you get the fast talking, departed Mark uh-huh. Wahlberg, and you have the happening, stoic, emotionless Mark Wahlberg, and it's unfortunate because like a, any the movie, gambler or remake, yeah, it's a remake of a James Conn movie oh, with, okay, from the seventies, and. It's not very good. No, um, I didn't, it didn't look that good. No, it's not. And the trailer's like, played for every YouTube video I've watched the past month. <laughs> and it's just it's it sucks. And I always find gambling addiction to be fascinating because I worked in a casino and saw it firsthand. But also just like the oh, you worked in a casino? Yeah, I worked at Harris Casino in East I Chicago. You played, I thought you were a gambler. Uh, not like hardcore or anything, but you know, I did that for a little while. But I worked in a casino too. Where did you? What, what did you? What was your job? I was a pit clerk. I was like the assistant to the pit bosses, like the the guys in the suits, and they would hand me over their cards, and I would scan them, and then keep track of all the money that comes in and out of the table through a computer. A lot of data entry kind of stuff, and uh, I just got to sit back sometimes and just watch people lose thousands and thousands yeah. of dollars all the time, and. It just became like a you know fascination to me. Like, why do they? Why do they seem non-reactionary to losing all that money? What is the psychology of that? And I think California Split captures that beautifully. There, uh, James Toback, uh, writer director. He directed Fingers. He directed um, uh, The Pickup Artist. And two girls and a guy with Robert Downey Jr. Many years later. Oh, I didn't see that one. Nah. But he, he did the Tyson documentary. 
there's a documentary about him, and he is a gambling addict. And so, mm. like, a lot of his movies are about addicts. Uh, like, Pickup Artist is obviously, it, Robert Downey Jr. is an addict, and obviously Fingers, like, Harvey Keitel is an addict. He's a finger addict. He's a, he's a sex addict. Mm. But, so he talks about the compulsive behavior of gambling addicts, and he says that winning isn't the high. The high is losing. Because... That's such a weird thing to think about. It's, <laughs> it's I mean... It's it's hard yeah it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around but it's essentially just if you're winning all the time there's no you're not feeling danger and you need to you need to feel the low you need to feel hmm. really low because what the what the what the high is is being right on the edge of destruction and then coming back and so like the end of California split is this brilliant oh, ending oh yeah where you know they've been bouncing around they keep getting robbed they've been like. They ha- they do crazy thing, like pretty early on. George Seagal just sort of abandons his job, like he sells his car, he abandons his job, he sells all of his appliances, he sells his typewriter. He's a writer for a magazine, but you never see him working because he's obsessed with gambling with Elliot Gould. They just they they just create this like feedback loop right. of energy, and they just act like junkies. Like they're just all right. Where are we getting the money to gamble? Like. When they win a lot of money, Elliot Gould is thrilled because that means they can play the horses for the rest of their life. It's not that I have all this money, I can pay off my house, I can do this, I can do that, I can go on a vacation. He has money enough that he can just keep, keep gambling, on gambling yeah. and, and not fear anything. <laughs> like, like, his only long-term goal, like, it's a, it's a weird thing, whereas, it's like, imagine heroin if every fifth time you used heroin, more heroin came out, and you got it, like... Yeah, you know that this. I <laughs> like, can understand where, the, like the, the money they win from gambling is only useful in that it allows them to keep gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so the ending, instead of being like this bottoming out where they like totally collapse and everything falls apart, and they're like, "Oh my god, we're junkies. We've reached our rock bottom, or whatever." Yeah, they win everything. They are on the hottest streak of their lives, and it eventually just snaps George Seagal because he doesn't have that. He's not getting a kick from it anymore. He's not getting that juice. He's not getting that jolt from it. And it just, and it just, it's this weird low note where it's like, they are so degenerate gamblers. It, the low point isn't like they rob their kids. Like, it's not like they break into their kids' piggy bank so they can go gamble some more or whatever. The low point is they have all the money and they have none of the thrill and they realize that they're like, they, and it's laid bare what they're actually chasing. Yeah. Um, The moment of realization of what they're actually doing to themselves. Brilliant, brilliant ending. And, Elliot Gould as just this fast-talking, hyper-junkie. The scene that they first meet in the bar and they're just drunk and they're just yammering on about the seven dwarves oh, and, yeah. and Dumbo. And then there's the callback to the Dumbo scene. Like, and ever again, like I said, like Elliot Gould is improvisational genius. And oh, you got to see California Split. Absolutely, it's definitely one of the that was, that was one I watched for the first time. For this and uh, you know, I mean, I know he went through a period of just being really uh, passionate about doing live theater and, you know, Secret Honor was sort of indicative of that. Just like, you know, one man show basically in yeah, one room. Most, most of his films through the eighties were adaptations of plays. Right. Right. Which is like, I saw, I haven't seen many, to be honest, I haven't seen many of his eighties films. Um, they're not generally well regarded. They're often extremely hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them never came to DVD. That would be an interesting bonus episode for the future since you've done film adaptations to talk about play adaptations. Yeah, I think that would be really cuz I'm really into that. I love that. And the I th- problem is you it's e- it's very easy to read a book. Yeah, and, 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 and to go to, to library. Movie, yeah. But it's harder to say like, well, I saw 
the original a long production. day's journey into night on yeah, stage. Like, I saw the original um, production of Glengarry Glen Ross, and this is the adaptation of the life. True, like, you can read the book, but I, you know, you know, I have several, you know, scripts of plays and stuff. I have like Edward Albee, you know, uh, compilations and stuff. All these plays, but reading it isn't the same. They're not adapting the the play mm-hmm. script. They're adapting the play. Right. And a play is usually a specific thing. I just want to have a reason to talk about Vanya on 42nd Street because that that's what got me really into like, oh, man, I think maybe I'd get into theater more if I could have the opportunity to go yeah. to more theater and what? stuff. Hotticks.org, my friend. Mm. Half-price uh, half tickets. Yeah, and I, I will say that, um, you know, seeing something like The Player – I thought it was a really kind of dark and cynical movie in the midst of all of its goofy humor. I mean, I mean, again, anti-establishment, anti-studio culture, and just kind of like being uh, really critical of the system that he was involved with, and understandably so. Uh, and, you know, the ending, it's just being this ironic thing where it's like, um, you think that he's actually going to invest in this movie idea with a sad ending that's real and has genuine pathos. And then, of course, they do the happy Hollywood thing. And it's really upsetting to, to witness that in the movie and just like uh, I didn't have enough investment. Yeah, I the understand. It's, it's, were too it's broad, for right? Some, like I think it's good satire, like Definitely. especially for something that's it been widely satirized as Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Like pretty much since Hollywood has existed, there's been uh, films that satirize Hollywood. <laughs> like yeah. back to the 30s and 40s, you know. Yeah. Even even movies that aren't comedies, like The Bad and the Beautiful, there's plenty of Hollywood satire in that. Like. It's it's one of those. I think things. I'm a sucker for that. I think I'm. Yeah, you I, just like you just like that. Yeah, I mean, even it's, something it's like not, even like something like State in Maine, which is kind of innocuous. It's I still really State, get into. I think it. State Maine's one of the funnier ones. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it, it it can be. I can get really tired of it because it can. It's just easy jokes. It's just like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's jokes we make every week. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to even be in the industry to make jokes about. You know, yeah. About the cliches of the industry. I'm sure back then it was a little bit more, I don't know, pointed and just the fact that, I mean, it's, I, well, I, I think the I French think, lapped it up too because they just like the idea of us was, making fun of uh, ourselves. time because the player exists in a time when indies were starting to break into Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Like it exists in the post-sexualized videotape world. And yeah. so like it exists in that Miramax sort of era uh, or at the beginning of the Miramax sort of era where, I mean, it was before Pulp Fiction. So it was before the, the idea just totally exploded. Yeah. But and before like Fargo was nominated. It, it, it exists yeah. in the era where Hollywood, like where you could have a movie where Hollywood is actually asking genuine questions about uh, like the artistic merit of their product. Whereas like you couldn't make that movie now because the concept of any producer in Hollywood, of any executive producer in Hollywood, <laughs> like giving a shit about the artistic merit of something, mm-hmm. which it's like it's a ridiculous concept. Like the even someone as broad and cynical as uh, Tim Robbins' character in in the player, like wouldn't he doesn't even exist? Yeah, I would agree with that so, overall. Like that that like, but uh, it was an interesting sort of crossroads at uh, for Hollywood um, in in the early nineties. So it sort of captures an interesting era, and that mm-hmm. it's valuable in that way. And, and everybody was like, oh, he's back. You know, Altman is back. Yeah, and yeah, it's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, oh, he, he wins the uh, award at Cannes. I and called in, like, a ton of favors for that movie. <laughs> like, the idea that that movie's just packed with everyone. 
Mm-hmm. Have you seen Shortcuts? I have, and I really like it. I don't know if I'd put it up there as one of his masterpieces, and a lot of people seem to. I haven't I haven't seen it in, like, six years or something. I, yeah, I, I started been, to watch it... I, a couple I years ago, like I saw it. Again. So I started to watch it today to before we went to go see A Girl Walks Home Alone at night. And then I saw the time, and it was, like, three hours. I'm like, well, I'm not going to be able to finish this before the podcast, mm-hmm. so... Oh, certainly has incredible performances and great moments. And, you know, it's just something that like as much claim it's gotten, it just doesn't compare to the Altman of the seventies. It just, I I think it's, it's good for what it is. I like the idea of adapting a bunch of short stories and having them all sort of tie together and have characters run into each other. Obviously it's one of the reasons why I love Magnolia. I love that approach, you know, and we should talk about, I don't think we talked very much about Nashville. Oh yeah, yeah. We gotta wrap it up on that one. Because as as much as I love something like Gosford Park, it's not something that I can like. You know, we can talk about why it's so great. It's just one of those things that you'll love. It's a fun, yeah, Agatha Christie kind of a which I love. I love that structure, mystery comedy sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, With again, like class issues and for sure, for sure, not a very serious way. It's not. But I also like the idea of subverting your. sort of expectation of like, okay, we got to find out who did it. We got to find out who oh, did yeah, it. Yeah. And it's well, just sort yeah. of underplayed. It, it's, it's got that, it's got that Altman terror. Yes. It's like, that's not important. Right. Where you're like, this is an Alt, this is still an Altman movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may be getting a little long into still an Altman movie. We're not going to worry about the plot that much. Exactly. But so the structure of Nashville is something that exists all, all over the place. Now, boogie nights, obviously mm-hmm. crash. Um, a lot of, uh, Iratu, how do you pronounce the director? Bird? That's it. That's it. In your Iratu, in your Iratu. You sort of you sort of rush through the first two syllables. Yeah, in your Iratu, in your Iratu, in your Iratu. A lot of his films like have this sort of structure of people you know love actually like films as mainstream and beloved as love actually like which I don't like, but you have to appreciate <laughs> the ambition of mm-hmm. trying to be the Nashville of romantic comedies. Um, yeah. Where it's just it's sort of all these different characters intersecting into each other's stories, and there's no main character. Um, yeah. Well, I guess I guess that is where something like uh, Boogie Nights differs is there is a main character, mm-hmm. so it's not as uh, Magnolia would be would be the uh, Nashville right in his uh, repertoire in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's repertoire. But like before that existed, before Nashville existed, and and this is the thing that Pauline Kael said: oh, this will change everything. Mm-hmm. Which it didn't, because <laughs> this is like too crazy an idea to be a standard operating procedure. But it like before the Nashville existed, there weren't any movies like Nashville. No, it, Nashville is a radical departure from the way most movies are made. Um, it's it it has some of his most heartbreaking characters. It has some of his funniest. I'm not gonna say his funniest moments because it's not Mash or California Split, but right. it, it has a lot of really funny moments. It's wall-to-wall music. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, even surprises me watching it in its entirety. It's like, well, all songs play out sometimes in their entirety. Yeah. And that's something I was not I was surprised, too. And, you know, nowadays it's kind of, I don't know, not, not necessarily, like, unexpected, but I just, I mean, again, Nashville felt like a singular experience, like something that I can't imagine being made by any, anybody else. If, if, if you don't like Altman's aesthetic and you're like, oh, these, these movies are too shaggy, they're too loose for me, they're too sprawling, like, mm-hmm. Nashville, unless you really like country music, like, Nashville's gonna, you're never gonna make it through it. Yeah. Because <laughs> Nashville is the most sprawling and the most shaggy, but 
it also is a really good summing up of the 70s. Yeah. It's oh, like, for it's, sure. It's, it's the thematic content of it. Yeah. yeah. It's really rich. Portrait of the decade. I let, we're talking over each other a little bit. I like this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get on Keith Can you play some country music in the background? Play some country music in the background. Mm-hmm. That that we were doing closer was more like radar, where I was just saying everything you were saying <laughs> five seconds after you said it. Um, but like every character is really good, and it does something that a lot of movies like. I mean, we don't have to get into Birdman because we're sure we're probably going to get. We'll into definitely Birdman talk about it in the next episode. But like, it is a really hard thing to pull off, which is. You're you're focusing on so many characters that you're only getting little glimpses of their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to make sure that you, that your the audience is invested enough in any of the characters when you have so many. And there's like a cast of I think like twenty to twenty four people who are fully fleshed out speaking lines um, characters in this movie. Yep, it's insane. I mean, well, there's also Jeff Goldblum who is. Jeff Goldblum is just like this <laughs> fucking creature. Like he's just this god who wandered in. Like he's bemused at all of his mortals. <laughs> he's just this god on a chopper or a tricycle, as the credits mm-hmm. would call it. And it certainly and it certainly makes me rethink. Like my god, the mom from Nightmare on Elm Street. Because <laughs> I I wasn't aware of like anything outside of her. What, who, what character? Is uh, she? Ronnie Blakely. Um, Suling Suling Yeah. That's the mom from Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, and she's in California Split too as the as the prostitute. You're right. I think so. Yeah, so that's the mom from Nightmare on Elm Street. Am I thinking of the right character? It's. I mean, it's. It's. She sings the song at the at the Let end of the movie. Let me be the one to understand you. Yeah. I never mm-hmm. get enough. I never <laughs> the tone deaf singer, mm-hmm. well, the saddest character, right, in the whole thing with the. <laughs> world that maybe cinema's saddest striptease. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, fingers crossed, you know, there's a possible, <laughs> they can top it. Are you fingers <laughs> top? No, the, the possible, no, the possibility of, uh, us getting to talk with her might happen. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I, yeah, I mentioned to you, my neighbor from Grand Rapids, Michigan oh, had man. a lot of connections and, you know, it's like a huge fan of, uh, a lot of, different actors and actresses that like, Oh, I didn't know you. Oh, you she's know that person. Great. She's, she's great in Nashville. She's great. Yeah. In California split. Yeah, she's absolutely. Wonderful. Like just, I just want to know more about what it's like to work with Robert Altman, to sure. be honest. Um, um, but, so, but Nashville, I mean, I, I think Birdman is a good movie, but I think it's like, a very good. Movie. I think the, I think the flaws that Birdman has as far as just like being, maybe spreading itself too thin, um, spreading its wings. Too much. There you go. Okay. There you go, Jim. Uh, like Nashville is perfect. Like you get mm-hmm. just enough glimpses. Like the the relationship between Ned Beatty, and oh Lily, Lily Tomlin, Lily Tomlin, and yeah. the two deaf children is like it's so potent. And you only like there's probably only like the, the actual like family dynamic of them. Mm-hmm. There's probably only like seven minutes of screen time dedicated to it at most. Yeah. Like those characters also have other stories. How does he do on. that? I don't know. It's just he can. It's an just, inexplicable uh, feat. I think it's just like the first time you see them all together. Like Ned Beatty is talking about some bullshit with Michael Murphy on the phone about the <laughs> campaign or whatever, and then you just see like his back is to these two children who are excitedly telling um, 
you know, Lily Tomlin, their mother about their day. And, he, and the boy just has this monologue about his swim class. Mm-hmm. And like, and she's trying to like get Ned Beatty off the phone. Like, you only want to tell you about swim class. And like, there's just this look in Ned Beatty's eyes, like this like panic that he sort of, that you sort of see. And then he sort of tries to subdue as he tries to be a supportive father. You're like, Oh my God. Like this guy is so yeah. equipped. Like this guy was dealt such the wrong hand and she was dealt the right, like she's the perfect mother. And he, and you can just fill in the details of that marriage and that family unit and what that life is like. With- yeah. It's almost like reading a book where you get to fill in the details like that. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously you have the visual cues and you get to read body language and all that on screen, but it's like, and it's, I think it's just because their performances are able to be so naturalistic. And yeah. So many characters are able to be on screen at once. You can have that sort of thing happen. Mm-hmm. You can have this, amazing like you know nashville is not a movie about like setups and big payoffs like magnolia like the magnolia is similar in structure to nashville but like where they differ is magnolia is all about big payoff big payoff big payoff like that's that's the energy of that movie like that's the momentum of that movie is all about big emotional payoffs and whereas nashville has more of just sort of a a longing and melancholy Mm -hmm. and, and sadness and hopefulness and like every kind of not every yeah. So there's some loose ends. Not everything is yeah, like tied in a neato. But like the the one, not the one moment, but one of the moments where like several storylines try to kind of dovetail into each other is the moment where Keith Carradine is singing "I'm Easy," oh. and he's in this crowded bar. And in this bar, there's like maybe eight people that you know that right. don't that maybe they don't know him, and they all have interesting stories and lives of mm-hmm. their own, and. Among these people, like, there are four different women who all think that he's singing to them. And it's this, like, just amazing moment because the way they're responding says so much about each one of them. It says different things. And the one that he's actually singing to is, like, unassuming housewife Lily Tomlin. And it's only because, like, she's the one who's most off limits to him. Yeah. And then – and you see her, like, making a conscious decision – about what this song means, about what it means that she's in this bar right now, even though she has a husband and children and he's this rock star and she knows this isn't going anywhere. Unlike some of the people that he's, you know, that he sleeps with who he leads along. Um, Yeah. That's the thing I love about those moments too, is again, perfectly summarizing the idea of show don't tell and just capturing facial expressions in that moment is beautiful. Like reactions to music, kind of an easy sell for me sure but um certainly like you because you have a context and you know you know specifically about what each character is experiencing you could feel what they're feeling it's it's almost as if the whole film context is a good word because it's almost as if in creating characters that are so real and feel so lived in and they all live in a world that feels so mm -hmm. real and lived in um in no small part because of his screenwriter there um I can't remember her name, but she basically took a two week trip out to Nashville. And the thing that made her think of the structure was that she kept running into the same people, no matter where she went. (laughs) And it was like, it it was this small town feeling in this big city. And like, so that was the thing she tried to capture. And so she had the idea of like, what if everywhere we go, we keep seeing the same people and like all these people are just keep running into each other. Um, And that was sort of the, yeah. And, and like you can, and like, you know, that was, I think, I think that movie came before Three Women. I could be wrong, but I think Three Women is like 76 or 77. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that was sort of the first movie for me where, like, Altman, an Altman movie had really, really strong female characters. Like, there's, 
like you really care about the the prostitutes in California Split. Like it actually stops to care about them. In Mash, the nurses don't don't really have names. They don't really get their own arcs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just sort of like Mash is weird. <laughs> to to take a brief aside, the, the the fundamental thing that makes Mash so fascinating to me and why I'm so attracted to it, and also what makes it hard for me to embrace it totally, is because it's basically like what if the Marx Brothers. <laughs> were shot not like a stage play, but naturalistically. And what if the Marx Brothers, instead of being these... Like, the Marx Brothers, they're these archetypes, right? Like, Groucho is this guy who's always trying to play an angle, mm-hmm. he's always trying to get ahead. And Chico is the immigrant. And Harpo is the tramp, you know? And they're these, like... They're just sort of coded as lower class. Right. Um, and, and everyone that they're trying to upend is coded as upper class. So, like, they can just do whatever they want to these rich people in the Marx Brothers movies, and you don't care because they're, they're just these snobs. So, like, the fact that they run around and ruin their dinner parties and just, like, you know, make people's <laughs> people's faces fall in the punch bowl or whatever. Like, like Same with the Three Stooges. Too. It's great. Yeah, Three Stooges is the same way. It's always yeah. the snobbiest of snobs who are employing these these three lower-class guys, and mm-hmm. you want to see them turn, you know, you want to see them turn high society on its head. Yeah. In MASH, they are surgeons which makes them the most privileged people right, right, on right. that thing. That's a good point. And the only reason they're able to get away with everything they do is because they can't be affo- that the army can't afford to discipline them. <laughs> now, to be fair, like if you want one target that you can do anything to them and no one will care because they're the most disliked <laughs> target mm. possible in 1970, you're going to want to attack the army. Yeah. Like, fuck the army, you know? So these guys running around, you know, misspending army dollars and, like, not taking the army seriously, it's really cathartic and important, and that's why it was such a big mm. countercultural hit. But also there's just some people that they're just, like, fucking around with that are in way lower status than them. <laughs> and it's not the same as the Marx Brothers. Yeah, I and can see that being a... It, and it's got this weird vibe to it where... Because uh, also the Marx Brothers never had to do, like, horrific surgeries. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes MASH fascinating is it it juxtaposes these scenes where they're just acting like crazy party animals with these scenes where they're just arms deep and gushing blood and just death and just mortal wounds and, <laughs> like, it's just, yeah. just the horrific outcome of war. And, I mean, the narrative that it paints to me is, like, this is how these guys blow off steam is by acting crazy. Right. Like, honestly... That's their outlet to... I don't have mm-hmm. a job that is one... One percent as stressful as as a surgeon in a war setting has, but like to me, there's a lot in mash that just feels like working retail, <laughs> which is just like <laughs> there's just this onslaught, this crushing. Like you don't feel like you're actually accomplishing anything. Hmm. It's just you're constantly given bodies to serve. <laughs> and like that's what I mean. It's like it's just it's never ending. It's not like well we we did good work today because we blank. like you never feel like you accomplished anything. You just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And like the way I deal with it is I just act crazy. Like if you saw the way I talked and act and well I mean maybe people who listen to this podcast wouldn't be surprised. No, but I just act like an idiot. Like I'm constantly just dancing and singing and yelling people's names and strange voices and stuff. And I'm just acting like I'm not you know I'm not. I'm not uh, disrobing people publicly, <laughs> but like, it's not just, yet, but I mean, it's, I mean, clerks, like the one thing about clerks that yeah. like really, that like really struck a nerve with people. The reason clerks work so well. And the reason why none of, uh, none of uh, Kevin Smith's other movies work the same way is because clerks was about this, 
these people who are just put upon and just having to act out in strange ways because it's the only way you can deal with the mind numbing mm-hmm. job that is like retail. And so like mash is really relatable on that end. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, maybe that's what ER was missing. Like, yeah. you know, in terms of it not really having a sense of humor, just like really crazy outlandish behavior in order to deal with all the, you know, bloodiness and gore yeah. and tragedy that happens. So why did I bring up mash in the first place? Mash but so like MASH is weird because it's these people with a shitload of privilege just acting like dicks to everyone around them, which is but they're also acting like dicks to the army. And it's like you, you can't you can't like get too mad because fuck the army. Maybe <laughs> yeah. they're just dicks and you know we get to follow them and enjoy. Right, right. But it's like the movie. But there's never ramifications too. It never does that moment where they flip and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, see, it's turned. They're actually monsters. These people you've been cheering for the whole time, they're monsters. Like it never does that. Mm-hmm. And it would never have been a success if it did. Like, part of its success hinges on the fact that you can just root for these people. Like, they literally drug someone during the football game. They bring a needle out of the field and they just fucking drug them. <laughs> like, they're crazy. Yeah. Uh, I forget what I was bringing up in Nashville. Nashville's not that. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I, I forget the connection to Nashville. But Nashville is... I mean, Kate Misses one of my favorite Robert Altman mm-hmm. movie, but Nashville is probably his greatest movie as far as nothing like it ever existed before and nothing that has come after inspired by it has ever really captured it. Right. And it's just, oh, it's it's brilliant. And it's also a movie that if you don't like Altman's style, it will be poison to you. Don't watch Nashville. But if you love it, you will love it. Yeah, yeah. And that's true. I mean, I will say that, um, you know, later on past... Uh, shortcuts. Although I had, I had not seen. I don't know if I ever will sit down to see Ready to Wear. Um, I'm, I eventually I want to see all of his films. Eventually, but there were like, there were some I mean, less like forty or so. There were some films that maybe. I had seen and have very little memory of, other than I thought they were pretty bad. Um, and one of them is unfortunate because again, it's like kind of a murder mystery a little bit. Um, Cookie's Fortune, okay. which was. I'm again. I saw it so long ago. I barely remember it, other than like, oh, great, Julianne Moore. Yeah, and you, you know, actually, like before you really knew who Robert Altman was, did you watch any Robert Altman movies in the nineties? Just well, I mean, I'd, I'd seen, 90s? yeah, I'd seen the player, obviously, and I was familiar with the name, but I didn't go back and watch Nash- Nashville, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I was like, I'm just going to watch whatever's recent. And you know, I, I never got up, a chance to see any Altman movies in the theaters, like uh, Cookie's Fortune. I saw that. And, of course, my mom loves Richard Gere, so I had to see Dr. T and the Women, and I didn't like that at all. Um, I'm curious about Kansas City because I'm a huge Jennifer Jason Lee fan, and I'd never seen that. But um, I will say that uh, you know his final film, the, the, the very last shot of A Prairie Home Companion, is really beautiful in a way because it's the angel of death coming. I Prayer Home Companion is a very minor movie. It is a very I, minor movie that I mildly enjoy. Yeah, I, I mildly enjoy it as well. Yeah. I think because it is Robert Altman's last movie and because it's such a eulogistic movie yeah. anyway, like I think people maybe overinflate like how important it is. And maybe or maybe I should just instead of being cynical, I should say it was very important to people. Sure. Where it wouldn't have been if Altman lived another five years or so and made other movies. I would agree with that sentiment. I mean, it's how can how can you go wrong when you have that <laughs> the song of puns with John C. Riley and Woody Harrelson in terms of making me smile, uh-huh. and then you got like you know back se- backstage banter between Meryl Streep and Lily Tomlin. You I- got um, uh, 
greatest actor of our generation. Kevin Klein. Yep, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> that's all it takes. Know, I don't know if that's true, but I like that I said greatest actor of our generation and you said Kevin Klein, which is what I was going for. <laughs> Kevin Klein running around being Kevin Kleiny. Yeah. Like I don't know I haven't I'm not I'm not super up on Kevin Klein's career, but that's the only other movie other than uh, uh, Fish Called Wanda where I get to see him being super Kevin Kleiny. Oh dude soap dish. Soap dish? Oh right, so soap good. Dish. <laughs> yeah. But I mean I like I like Prairie Home Companion, but not like head over heels over it or anything. I just, I kind of like the music and, you know, obviously the actors involved. Um, and you know, Paul Thomas Anderson shadowed him, I guess in that regard, but it's, it's definitely minor Altman and, but I, I, there's so much more like, you know, going through letterbox and seeing like, Oh my God, I want to see this, you know, the, the cold day in the park and Tanner 88. And oh, I should talk about Tanner 88. So please do. Cause I want to see it. It sounds great. Yeah, I love Veep. Okay. I love Veep. Uh, like the thick of it or in the loop? Yeah. All right. That's Tanner 88 is what started that. Oh, my God. Tanner 88 is shot on VHS or Betamax. Oh, wow. It is – it's a mini series that follows like a dark horse presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he's not uh, he's not like a third-party candidate. He's just running for the Democratic election. Um, and he's sort of a dark horse. And Michael Murphy again, huh? Yep, Michael Murphy. Wow, Murphy's all he's over just the place. he's like the Nash. James Legrosse of Robert Holtman. <laughs> Michael Murphy's great. Wait, what, who's James? Le- who is James Legrosse? The James Legrosse of? <laughs> he's just, James Legrosse is our our patron saint of Directors Club because he oh, came up right. so much. He comes up all the time. Weirdly, yeah. considering yeah. who he is. Um, yeah, Michael Murphy is Robert Holtman. Much love Michael Murphy, and you know Paul Thomas Anderson went and cast Michael Murphy in Magnolia. That's true, <laughs> along with Henry Gibson. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is saying attention. Tannery 88 is a very funny, satirical look at elections. I think it has a Julie Christie or Elliot Gould uh, cameo, the same way Nashville does. Oh. Um, it was made for HBO. It's shot on, like, home video equipment, um, which is kind of interesting to see because it looks like an Altman movie. Hmm. But, it's, but it's not shot on film, and I think that's the only Altman movie that wasn't shot on film. Or, it came it out in Criterion? Movie, it's a miniseries. Okay. Yeah, hmm. Criterion released it. Uh, wow. He did a follow-up in like 2002 or 2004 where it was like Michael Murphy taking on the character again. I don't know anything about hmm. that. Um, that's called Tanner on Tanner. But Tanner 88, uh, you know, we've talked about sort of the 80s being kind of a dark spot for Altman, even though he made like Secret Honor. Um, and I think Beyond Therapy is one of the weirdest fucking movies I've ever seen. It's not – it's like a madcap comedy that's not actually – witty <laughs> like but it is super weird and it's got julie haggerty and jeff goldblum both just acting like fucking yeah. jobs and christopher guest <laughs> and has one of the greatest um scenes with a pistol i've ever seen in my life it <laughs> towards the end of the movie it's this slow motion scene of christopher guest shooting a pistol it just goes on and on and on and on it's so funny um beyond therapy is worth seeing don't expect genius but Tanner 88, uh, definitely, probably, if, you know, one of the bright spots of... Got a lot of... Oh, you got to invest a lot of time in it, it seems. 353 minutes! Well, it's split over, like, five yeah. episodes. No, that's something I'm definitely going to check out, for sure. Five or six episodes? I, lo- I love Veep, and the idea of Robert Altman doing a version of Veep. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can see Robert Altman in Veep. Like, you can see it yeah. just sort of the structure of a show like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, I mean improvisational comedy is way more um, common now than it was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, I mean, honestly, like, I saw Neighbors, you know, in this month, or in December, 
And like Neighbors is nothing special. It's a pretty standard movie. But I love watching Seth Rogen comedies because they're really the only they're really the only remnant of Altman left in Hollywood, which is just this freewheeling, loose kind of improvisational comedic style. And I think I think Rogen is a very gifted, uh, you know, uh, improviser. And it's fun watching him improvise, even if it results in it's even if the results aren't Pineapple Express, they're just neighbors. Like, mm-hmm. I love watching that. And I think you know Altman's influential all over the place. I'm not going to say like he invented improvisation. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, uh, Del Close may have something to say about that, but yeah, um, <laughs> about the influence of in, of improvisational comedy right uh, in Hollywood films. But I'm just saying like. You watch early Spielberg movies. You watch the kitchen scene at the beginning of Jaws. You watch the the living room scene at the beginning of Third Close, Close Encounters, Encounters of Third Kind, yeah. with all the overlapping dialogue. Like Spielberg, before Spielberg had really nailed down what he did, like Spielberg definitely was a fan of Altman. Uh, yeah, so like he he's all over the place. Um, he's I, he I, I honestly think he's the greatest director ever. Yeah. I think he just he did what no one else did, um, and he made masterpieces that were unlike anyone else's masterpieces. There's no, I mean, again, like you can say a little bit of genre noir, you can see a little bit. I guess I don't know. I was going to say a little bit of early David Lean, but that's ridiculous. Like I can't think of a filmmaker who's less like Robert Altman than David Lean, mm. but. Like, no, in Brief Encounter, I can see it a little bit. Just right, a little well, bit. Just the humanism. But yeah. the film doesn't actually play out anything like... Right. Whereas, like, um, Grand Illusion and Rules of the Game kind of feel like Robert Altman movies, uh, if you look at them in retrospect like that. Hmm. But, like, yeah, he just sort of came in and he did his own thing, and he was dedicated... I mean, obviously, you know, dozens and dozens of filmmakers made masterpieces doing the same thing, but the difference between, to me, Robert Altman and Godard is that... I prefer movies about humans more than I like movies about movies. That's true. You do like movies about humans, which is why you hate Hal Hartley. Yeah, I hate Hal Hartley, and that's why I can't get into Godard. I mean, I, I make an exception for Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. That's <laughs> like In general, I like movies that are about people more than movies that are about movies. Mm-hmm. But if the movie in question is one of the most jaw-dropping uh like looking movies I've ever seen in my life, then I'll I'll go ahead and say style over substance. Go ahead. But like he just he is his into his intuition for people and he never sold out ever he never was like like he made popeye but he made he didn't he didn't he deliver. made popeye the way he wanted to make yeah, popeye he did not deliver popeye the way they wanted to right like he'll he would lie and he would deceive people he would just be like oh yeah nashville it's you know nashville it's gonna be a big movie because of the soundtrack and stuff like he knew mm-hmm. that that fucking soundtrack was gonna be worth it that's why he opened that movie the way he did and that fucking cheesy K-Tal presents Nashville, Robert Altman's Nashville, <laughs> with so Charlie Duvall, Keith Carradine, Jeff Goldblum in Nashville. Like, I know. So good. It is. His choices are unlike any other filmmaker ever. And throughout, especially like watching the three, my top three movies of his that we'll reveal in a second, I my jaw was on the floor. And I was like going... This is how I felt when I watched Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. Like the that high of like I've yeah. never seen anything like this and I love it for yeah. it. I mean And plus you have investment. It's it, not just like, oh great visuals or great, you know, eye candy or one great thing I'll say, Paul shot. Thomas Anderson t- takes a lot of the right lessons from Altman. One lesson I wish more independent filmmakers these days would take from Altman is that his characters have such life to them and they're so mm-hmm. idiosyncratic. I feel like a lot of independent films I watch now 
the characters are sort of the default. They're trying to be very relatable. So they try not to be too weird. And like, I don't watch many indie films where the main characters are like really weird or off-putting unless the point of the movie is look how weird and off-putting the, you know, like listen up, Philip. Listen up, Philip. Yeah. Listen up, Philip. Like that's the point of the movie. Right. Whereas like, I've never, like there are very few, you know, like, Oh, let's make a detective story, like a, a kind of a noir movie. But let's make the main character this fucking weirdo, and let's make every <laughs> other character in the movie, for that matter, a weird person. And like every, every, all the characters, even the bit parts, even the even the guy at the supermarket who's like, who's like, man, what do I need a cat for? I got a girlfriend. Right. That's like one even of that guy's great. And there's not enough yeah. of that in I feel like modern independent film. There's not enough of that just life, that joyous. Hmm. sort of weird, rambunctious uh, energy. Um, so You may be right. Yeah, I may be crazy. But I, I think you are the lunatic, lunatic you're looking for. Turn out the lights! No, 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 no. Don't try to save me. Mm-hmm. You, you may, may be wrong, wrong but all I know, I know you, you may be right. That was for you. That's what is the top three Robert Altman movies, Patrick Rapole? All right, my top three. Number one, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Uh, we talked about that on the movies that change your life. That's the first movie I ever saw where at the ending I realized that the movie worked both as a character piece and as an allegory as for like just big business killing yeah, yeah, yeah. independent spirit. And I mean, I was only like you know 19 or 20 when I saw it and I, I was not, I was not used to having those, those kinds of feelings about right. movies. I was used to just being like, yeah, this had cool characters and some neat shots. And like the, it became Mrs. Miller the first time I felt something like really grand uh, in a movie. So McCabe Mrs. Miller, number one, number two, Nashville. And I have to say, uh, number three, so hard. Um, but I think I have to say three women. I hope With so. California split and mash being mm-hmm. really close uh, mm-hmm. runners up. I'm I'm very predictable here, but number one is three women, mm-hmm. and number two is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and number three is the long goodbye because I don't know. It's just long goodbye. Uh, long so goodbye, so long original. Goodbye is the only film. Uh, that I would call of his that I'd call a masterpiece where I kind of feel the length. Ah, uh, yeah. Just me personally. Uh, maybe That's, a little bit, but there is no other phenomenal. scene with Elliot Gould being actually drunk oh, on the what? beach talking to the cops. Oh, is he actually drunk in that scene? Yeah. That's so good. Mm-hmm. And he said he wasn't a heavy drinker at all. Yeah. So like him drinking was like a big deal. And he did that for that scene. And it was just like, oh my God, I've never seen a drunk scene that good. It's great. Yeah, Robert Altman's great. Let's do part two again. <laughs> yeah, we should. Let's do it tomorrow. <laughs> um, no, we definitely will in the future. I'm sure because we'll there's other part movies. Two, and then, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll have a di- we won't be so enthusiastic because we'll have watched. <laughs> we'll do the Gingerbread Man. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a Gingerbread Man and uh, come back to the Five and Die and Jimmy D and Jimmy D. Mm. And we'll, we'll have watched all his '80s and '90s films and being like, you know, the thing about Robert Altman is uh, he could really phone it in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because we don't have that experience because we didn't watch a lot of those movies. but So we have about five days to cram in some of our uh, final choices for 2014. And I think you're – well, both of us, I know we're not going to get to see Selma in time. I think I might see Selma. Are you having access to it by the Oh, it's night? not out? I thought it was released no, in Chicago. it comes out next Friday. Oh, damn. Yeah. I thought it came out on Christmas. No. I mean, it came out on Christmas in New York and L.A. Oh, okay. Yeah. God, that's weird they're not releasing that wide. 
I think on the ninth they are. No, but I'm just saying, like, they, why didn't they strike when the iron's hot? Why didn't they release it in the midst of awards? Like, uh, it feels like. Well, I mean, after Oscar nominations, are that'll it'll like all the movies are going to expand everywhere. I'm sure. Yeah, all the big Oscar contenders. I guess that's true. Um, I guess I won't get a chance to see some. I, I'm yeah. pretty happy. I've seen 45 movies this year, including short films. Yeah, um, I think Salma's like the big one that you know could potentially make both of our lists that we probably won't get to include. Mm-hmm. But Inherent Vice, uh, I haven't gotten a chance to see. <laughs> I'd be very shocked if that made your top 10. But uh-huh. anything's possible. We want you guys, our listeners, to send in your. Oh lists. crap! We should probably tell people to do that at this yeah. point. Yeah, I, really Facebook, Twitter. We gotta do that. Yeah. Okay. Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. That's Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Visit us at Directors Club Podcast.com. I'm going to look up the voicemail number unless you have it memorized. If you don't, don't have it memorized, I'm going to look it up right now. We and have the webpage is loading, and everybody likes the webpage. And when we see, got to scroll past here, or I think I scroll past the number. And is the number <laughs> not on the front page anymore? Why the fuck is the number? Do we not have a number anymore? That's cool. I just need What the to hell? Know. What the hell? It's got to be I there. Don't see. Oh, there it is. It's just in a smaller text than I thought. Here it is. 224-366-9528. Okay, once again, that is 224-366-9528. Why don't you put that in your phone, and next time you walk out of the theater uh, and you want you want to tell someone about the movie you just saw, you have strong feelings about it, why don't you just leave us a voicemail at uh, 224-366-9528. Um, and you know what would be great if, is if you left some bad puns and on the voicemail too. Yeah, at least one bad pun per call. Um, so send us your voice, uh, your list that way. Our Facebook page, if you want to, we'll we'll put up a post on the our uh, on our Facebook page. If you want to just leave it there, if that's easier for you. Um, we want to know what you, you thought of the year. Oh, we got us. Oh, oh, we didn't get to do it. <laughs> what? I wanted to do. Uh, we'll we'll talk about it. You know what? We'll put it into the end of the year episode. I wanted to do 2015 film resolutions. Uh, like pledging to like, I want to watch like to me, I want, I want to watch at least a quarter of the movies I watched this year. I want to be from before 1960. Wow. Cause I, that's, I, I better watch think of that one. Movies. Well, I got to put together a list of subcategories anyway. Yeah. Okay. So Good anyway, idea. We'll, we'll come up with that for the next episode. I was going to do that for this episode instead of talking about what I watched this week, but that's fine. Um, you can find instant Jim at letterbox and Twitter. Yeah. And don't don't Do be don't be fooled. By the way, my my letterbox for 2014 is not set in stone. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I made mine private a couple weeks ago. Oh, so uh, so people you're a private dancer, sneaky sneaky peepers. Uh, they don't get to see what my list looks like right now. Um, Just hack into his laptop. Is your instantgym.com still? Yeah, I'm kind of doing some stuff there once in a blue moon. Sure. Um, that'd probably be a good place for them to get updates on your album. Yeah. Okay. And I'm at Patrick Rapole on Twitter, at Patrick Rapole on Letterboxd. Um, and uh, I don't have any albums coming out. Oh, yeah. shucks. It's too bad. It's too bad. But we'll be back in five, or I don't know when the <laughs> episode will be out, but in probably in a week. We're going to be recording. Yeah. Uh, our the end best of, year of 2014. That's right. So you leave it before Wednesday. Uh, if you need to leave a voicemail or email, because that's when we're recording. Yeah. Wednesday afternoon. It's going to be an afternoon once. I don't think we're going to get drunk. Unless you want. Because <laughs> you, you, had, you had shingles. 
and you're I'm on still medication. I'm still okay. I'm getting I'm better now. I can I celebrated the new year by drinking a beer. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, and you had, you just had a beer here, of course. Of course, right. I'm okay. I don't know. I don't know. It'd be kind of weird to get drunk during the day. Yeah. Well, you can get used to it. Oh, I uh, you can get used to it. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for thanks listening. For listening. Um, we'll see you in a few days, this hopefully. It felt so much better than the Skype episodes. I agree. I am so happy. Hey, mm-hmm. I love you, Jim. I love you, too, Patrick. He did not leave you very much, not even laughter. Like any dealer, he was watching for the car. It is so high and wild, he'll never need to deal another. Was just some Joseph looking for a manger. He was just some Joseph looking for a manger. And then leaning on your windowsill, he'll say one day you caused his will to weaken with your love and warmth and shelter. There's Dr. Gary the Squirrel! I know, Gary the Squirrel wasn't answering phones. Wow. So he goes, all right, stay in the line. I'm like, yeah, I could, but... Oh. I hung up. Oh, man. <sighs> Introduce Robert Altman. Hello, I'm Robert Altman. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm Elliot Gould.